Hi, friends, and welcome to what for me is a super special episode of the End of Sport podcast. It is our college, our revenue college athlete spectacular, where we have the opportunity to interview three different elite college athletes about their their work in college sport. Uh, I am Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am joined by my friend and co-host Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey, Nathan. So yeah, we don't we don't want to say too much here because really, like, all there is to it is this: it is so rare to have the opportunity to speak to current college athletes. There are so many constraints placed upon them in terms of their availability, um, their ability to speak publicly. Like, it's all part of the kind of coercive dynamics that go into big time college sports. Um, so to have the opportunity to speak to these athletes about you know some of the big issues of the day, the pandemic. Um, you know, racial justice and sport, athlete activism, and those are issues that we get into. But, you know, the thing that interests me the most, to be honest, and maybe this is just because of my own research focus, it's what is the day-to-day life of being a college athlete, right? Like, what goes into it? What do you actually endure in those in those hours and hour after hour after hour that the NCAA likes to frame through their little promotional um, enterprise, the day in the life of the student athlete, which was, you know, just a total crock. Um, but what does it look like for real, you know, and what kind of education do they actually get? We talk about these issues all the time, but we don't get to talk to the people who are doing it. And that's what this show is all about today. Yeah, Derek. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, um, share, leave a review of the podcast on Apple podcasts or on, um, Google play. Um, if you want to engage with us, Give us a follow and, and chat with us uh, on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Send us an email at theendofsport@gmail.com or check out our kind of freshly launched website at theendofsport.com. Hunter Reynolds is a senior defensive back for the University of Michigan. He is among one of the co-founders of College Athlete Unity. College athletes, and I refuse to use the NCAA's term student athletes, who have come together to fight for justice. It is a huge pleasure to have you on the show today, Hunter. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So uh, I want to get right into it today because we have so much to talk about with you, and we are incredibly excited to have um, a college football player on the show because, uh, as our listeners know, we are always talking about issues related to college sports and college football specifically, but it's a very, very rare honor for us to have someone who is involved in that form of work uh, on the show with us to talk about what it has been like. And what we really want to start with is this amazing amazing initiative that you have been a part of and, and the founder of to connect college athletes around issues related to social justice. Um, and I personally, I've been incredibly excited to watch an astounding wave of college football activism in the last few months. You know, we've seen Kylan Hill threatening to boycott the season at Mississippi State over that state's use of the Confederate flag. We've seen Chuba Hubbard calling out Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State. Uh, we've seen athletes at other schools like Kansas State, Texas, Iowa, and more protesting about conditions at their schools and about issues, especially about racial inequality on their campuses. So, first and most importantly, can you tell us a bit about what College Athlete Unity is, what you're trying to accomplish, um, and to what extent it might be uh, connected to or influenced by some of those events that I described? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so College Athlete Unity 
we're just uh, collegiate student athletes, and we recognize that you know we have a tremendous tremendous opportunity to represent our different schools in athletic competition. And with that opportunity, you know, we've also been granted a extremely large platform to you know just speak out on different issues and be able to reach a large audience. So you know, a lot of some college football players have ten thousand followers. Some have around 100,000 followers. So if we can just, you know, our goal was to be able to connect people from around the country. So if person player A has 100,000 followers and player B has 100,000 followers, but in a separate part of the country together, you know, they can reach 200,000 people with their followers. And then with the way social media works, you know, once a couple thousand people start liking something, uh, you know, it just kind of grows from there and becomes something that ends up trending and going viral. So our goal was really just to, you know, we recognize that student athletes all across the country were kind of voicing similar concerns to, about things. And we just felt that if we could kind of get everyone on the same page and even everyone, you know, speaking from kind of a unified place that the messages that people had would just be more powerful. You know, since we're just trying to address systematic injustice in our different communities. You know, everyone has a different background. And as we've seen over the last few months, you know, there's just so much wrong with America that us as student athletes, if we speak up, speak out about it, you know, just like I said before, we have such a large platform that, you know, our voices hold weight and like we could change people's opinions. There are a lot of people around the country who think a lot of different mm -hmm. things and if they kind of see people who they respect and they look up to and they root for every weekend voicing out about something, you know, we just hope that we can change some people's perspectives on things in order to, you know, really create the change that we want to see in America. And then also, you know, College Athlete Unity, we're also fighting for to ensure the well-being of uh, collegiate athletes. Can you speak a little bit more about about that kind of the the overarching goal for collegiate athletes like what do you want to see happen we've kind of been getting a lot of new ideas a lot of people kind of pitching things to us who just want to help out and want to be involved so you know in terms of the well-being i think for so long you've just seen there have been so many instances of kind of a negligence almost towards the well-being of student athletes so i know might have been like nine years ago when Shabazz Napier from UConn, UConn men's basketball, spoke out before the national championship game about how he went to bed hungry sometimes. And mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, him speaking out about that allowed the NCAA to overturn the rule where uh, schools could had to be limited in the amount they fed student athletes. So, you know, in something similar to that nature, we just kind of want to, you know, there's so many different instances of just our best interest not being put put first or even considered. So we just hope that by bringing together student athletes and hearing what those different uh, things are that things are that we can change them. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I have complete respect for what you're saying, because I think that actually it's, it's really hard. A lot of college athletes may not fully realize, and, and this is partly because you have so many responsibilities and you're constantly being told 
what to do and you have people who have power over your ability to do the things that you need to do um so it's a completely it's based on the context it's not it's not about individuals and whether they're you know right or wrong about a situation but what it's hard to see sometimes i think from the inside is how much power you have because college sport is such a tremendous business and it's such an it's become such an integral part of us universities um and it relies on you if you don't do that work for the universities then it stops, right? And so it's 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 absolutely spectacular to me that you are taking this initiative because I think kind of what you're gesturing to here is you may not have like a you know a ten step plan that's going to solve save the world. Uh, obviously, who does? But what you understand is that by connecting to each other, right, and starting these conversations and building something, that's going to allow you then to make something meaningful happen, right? And so I think that that's a, that's a great way of approaching it. And it also made me think of something that I think doesn't get nearly enough publicity, which is that although among football players, Colin Kaepernick is obviously most famous for his stance against police brutality and white supremacy, and of course, his subsequent blackballing by the NFL, many people, I think, have forgotten that an even more profound act of athlete activism was performed just one year before that, in 2015, at the University of Missouri when 30 black football players and then later the entire team in solidarity declared they would boycott all football activities until the president of the university resigned for his failure to deal with a racist campus culture. And before the very next scheduled game, that president had resigned. Um, and I think that, like, that really tells us everything we need to know about the power that college football players especially have on our campuses. I'm just curious if you're familiar with those events at Missouri and if they might influence you at all. I bet you if it was just one student athlete who kind of felt that way, or maybe even like, let's say five student athletes who felt that way, they might feel a little more hesitant to speak out just because, you know, it really feels like it's them against the university. But then once you kind of get more people on board, and that's kind of our goal at CAU as well, once you get more people on board, you start to see people feel more comfortable just because now they're part of a group. And, you know, when you're part of a group, you don't necessarily have to deal with your face being out there as much. Like instead of your face, you're behind almost like a movement. And so, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with, you know, especially as a student athlete, nothing wrong with being hesitant to want to speak out because you fear, you know, backlash, you fear uh, ramifications from your team. But once you can see that, oh, well, there's a thousand other college athletes right now speaking out on the same issues that, you know, I have frustration with internally, then you're more willing to open up and start speaking out because, you don't have to deal with just the repercussions on your own. There, there is something, there's this like narrative here. And I, and I want to say this is amongst college football fans. And I use that very specifically because I think it's a very specific type of fan who's contributing to this narrative that like college athletes who are against the system or who want to come out against the system against like poor working conditions or exploitation are among the like the minority of collegiate athlete how would you respond to that in in your experiences and, and your work um with CAU and and then like kind of to to follow up on that like do you think 
that narrative is true? Like, does that make, does that resonate with you at all? In a response to that kind of fan, you know, they really only see the Saturdays that we play. They don't see, so mm-hmm. what's that, 12, 13, between 13 and 15 games for college football. So that's 13 to 15 days out of the year that you see what, what we're doing. And even then, that's only for three hours of the day. After that, there's 353 to 300 and like 50, 50 other days in the year that yeah, they yeah. just don't don't witness. They don't see what goes on behind the scenes. So for them to, you know, confidently speak out on how they feel when in reality they don't know even half of the situation just shows that, you know, they're kind of, I don't even know a great term for it, but they just, you know, feel they don't know the true scope of the situation. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and not knowing that, you know, there's no way you can accurately speak out on what you think is going on. Yeah, it's it seems like a like a protectionist strategy to because they want they want to see you for those Saturdays, right? They want to see you on the field. They want to cheer for like old state you. They want all that. And they they will use like this idea or this narrative that this like it, it's only a few college athletes who care about these things as a way to like protect the system that they like love and completely ignore all of the exploitation that is happening there, right? So listen, I got I got a, I got a really long question for you here, um, but it's probably because I want to share for um, not not so much necessarily even you, but for our listeners with some of the events that have been happening recently. Um, so we were talking about earlier some of the kind of racial justice focused activism questions, and obviously that's clearly a huge part of what you are trying to accomplish here with your organization. Um, but what we've also seen, which is amazing to me. Um, We have seen athletes speak out publicly, college football players specifically, about their concerns about their health and well-being and safety conditions due to the pandemic. Um, And of course, conditions vary uh, at institutions across the country, in part because the NCAA has actually not regulated how institutions have to care for their athletes, right? So that means that it's on the particular universities. And so, of course, some universities are going to go about it in, I think, more conscientious, a safer way. And some are going to be, um, um, hint, 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 Clemson, uh, not so conscientious about it. Um, so as a consequence of that, you know, athletes have been speaking very publicly in a way I don't ever remember seeing kind of in my, um, my years watching college football. And so I just want to cover some of the things we've seen because I think they're, they're really powerful. And then, and then I'll ask you to maybe just respond a little bit to what you think of their comments. So um, first, in June, 30 players for the UCLA football team sent a letter to the university making a series of demands. And I actually want to read a bit from the letter for listeners who are unfamiliar because it's, it's a remarkable document. So I'm quoting now. Time and time again, we see individuals within athletic programs who ought to defend and protect us leave us in the dark to fend for ourselves. Starting with neglected and mismanaged injury cases to a now mismanaged COVID-19 pandemic, our voices have been continuously muffled and we will no longer stand for such blatant injustices. As a result of precedents set by former and current athletic staffs, we will no longer leave the topic of our health and safety in the hands of those who have perpetually failed us. Furthermore, we will no longer stand for the condemnation of these types of failures. We as a football community assert our right to protect, 
preserve, and make decisions with regard to our own personal health and safety, and now demand that we are able to do so without consequence in terms of reduction or cancellation of scholarship benefits or retaliation from coaches and faculty in any shape or form. And then the players have a set of demands here. And here are some of the demands. First, third-party health officials in charge of overseeing and enforcing health and safety guidelines. Also, see that guidelines should be clearly and publicly stated. Number two, whistleblower protections provided for athletes and staff, protection of position or job, who want to report violations of any guidelines. Number three here, ability to make decisions with regard to personal health without consequences in terms of loss of scholarship or retaliation from coaches in any form. That is, it should be within an athlete's discretion to put his or her health at risk and attend a sports-related event without consequences. So that's the amazing, to me, UCLA letter. And then, much more recently, we found out from former Arizona State quarterback Rudy Carpenter reported on Twitter that, and now I'm kind of quoting from his tweets here, Pac-12 football players have created a list of demands for the Pac-12 universities to take into consideration. If the demands aren't addressed or complied with, the players are threatening to sit out the season. He said there is significant support growing among all 12 teams with 50 or more players on many teams in support of this action and demands list. The initial idea was to create a players union. They decided time didn't allow for this and figured that the best way to create the change they want is to boycott this season. Things they're asking for include a 50-50 revenue share, six years of insurance upon graduation, better COVID-19 testing and protocols, etc. The player group is being spearheaded at Cal football, and they've been holding phone calls with other Pac-12 teams. There is some kind of a players-only meeting or vote that will be taking place shortly, he said. Now, just a couple of days ago in your own conference, right, that we're talking to um, a, a player at the University of Michigan, um, Michigan State offensive lineman Jordan Reed tweeted after we found out that the entire team will have to be placed in quarantine. And by the way, the next day, we found out the entire Rutgers team has also been placed in quarantine. So that's two teams in the Big Ten that have been placed entirely in quarantine. So Michigan State offensive lineman Jordan Reed tweeted, quote, guys are testing positive across the country left and right. Why is there still discussion on a season? Why is it taking so long to make a logical decision? Hmm, let me guess, revenue, end quote. So there's a ton here. But the question I have is, to what extent are you kind of aware of and share these concerns about health and safety in the context of the pandemic? Not to mention this sort of larger issue, I think, here when it comes especially to a sport like football, right? Which is a dangerous sport, fundamentally. The issue of a say in working conditions, your working conditions. So, you know, I just think that for as long as the NCAA has been around, you know, there hasn't really been an emphasis placed on the well-being of student athletes. And I think we've kind of seen in terms of this pandemic that there really hasn't been a plan plan that's been made to ensure the well-being of student athletes. So I think that's why you're seeing a lot of just speaking up right now, because people are realizing that in a matter of what 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 is it going to be like a little under two months, uh, we're going to be expected to you know, suit up and start playing games against other teams. And, you know, at most places, there isn't even a uniform testing procedure. Like I've spoken to people at players at other schools. Some players have been tested three times already uh, since they've returned to campus in like mid-June. And some players haven't been tested at all. So, you know, if your team's been 
everyone's been tested, everyone's been cleared, that's great. But then if you, you know, go play against a different team whose testing procedures has been, you know, they tested like half the team a few months ago, and then someone on the other team happens to, you know, be a player who's asymptomatic, then the lack of responsibility from that other team can cause an infection to, or the virus to spread within your own team. And I think players are really, you know, conscious of that. I think like college football players are extremely intelligent. You know, we recognize we recognize a lot of different things that, you know, might get people might not realize because we have the dumb jock stereotype. But we recognize a lot of things that go on. So we recognize that there hasn't been, you know, uniform testing procedures. We recognize there hasn't been uniform uh, quarantining procedures for a positive test. Or if you're through contact tracing, it's been determined that you've been in contact with someone who's tested positive. So I think that's why, you know, players are starting to speak amongst themselves and start almost formulating their own plans. Based on what you see around you and like what you see other places like Clemson, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, there's been outbreaks. Kansas, Kansas State, there's been outbreaks. Do you feel comfortable starting the end, like the college football season um, amongst all of this? Based on what I've seen from other schools, I don't have 100% confidence, no. Mm-hmm. You know, if the NCAA were to come out tomorrow and say, you know, here's the testing procedures, uh, here's a list of guidelines every school is going gonna, is gonna to have to follow, uh, and, you know, if you don't follow it, you potentially are at risk of forfeiture, loss of scholarships, bowl bans, fines, then, you know, I think you'd see just an uptick in confidence. So we've written on whether or not there should be a college football season we've written on like and we've talked a lot at length on this podcast about and we've tweeted about whether or not this like should exist can you walk our listeners through what it would mean to you to be able to play this season and then on the the reverse side of that if the season is canceled what that would mean to you yeah i mean if there were a season i'd be i'd be ecstatic you know, mm-hmm. over the course of from January to March when we were in the weight room, you know, just all the work we put in. And then, you know, even when everything got shut down and I, and I went back home, you know, I was putting books in a book bag and using that to simulate, you know, just weights. And I was doing hundreds of push-ups a day. You know, mm-hmm. there, like there's been a lot of like hard work put into making sure that I'm prepared for a season. So, you know, seeing all that hard work, being able to come to fruition and, you know, seeing, being able to see the results, like that would, that's, that's what I want. Like at the end of the day, you know, even though there is some concern over the way things are being handled, I do want there to be a college football season. Like I do want Mm -hmm. to play. So being able to play, you know, would just make all the, hard work that I put in up to this point just kind of feel like it's worth it. Do you trust, do you trust like not only your institution, but the NCAA as a whole to ensure that you have a safe um, working environment? I mean, I trust, I trust ours. I trust the university of Michigan so far. I think mm-hmm. that yeah. the procedures we have in place right now 
I think they've been working so far. You know, I think because you can't fully control everyone on the team. There's over 130 guys, I'm pretty sure. You can't yeah. control everyone. So, you know, there's inevitably going to be one or two guys who goes to a part, goes to a party somewhere or goes, you know, hanging out with a bunch of different people and ends up uh, contracting the virus. But for the most part, I think most guys are being real conscious of, you know, kind of so- still socially distancing, still wearing their masks, uh, just, mm-hmm. you know, making the right decision. And then on top of that, you know, we've been, players have been getting, been tested uh, multiple times here. Um, you know, a lot of the strength staff and the other uh, people who kind of are on staff have been real conscious about reminding everyone, you know, pull your mask up, make sure it's over your nose. I know in the weight room, uh, there's a ton of sanitation being doing in between every time someone touches something, which I'm not sure if that's going on in other schools, but yeah. I know at least at Michigan, we're taking steps and doing things differently than we've done before. Like, I feel like if you're a school and, you know, your routine is no different than what it was last year, then that's kind of how this thing ends up spreading and getting out of control. Yeah. Absolutely. And actually, I, I really like the point you made about the fact that, you know, you can't control 130 plus people uh, under any set of circumstances. And, and one of the things that really bothers me is the narrative that sometimes comes out, like people start blaming you, the athletes or students in general, like, oh, you know, these students, they don't, they don't take it seriously enough. They don't really care. They're going to go out to the bar or go out with their friends or what. And that completely, to me, forgives these institutions their responsibility, right? Because they have asked you, they've actually required you to come onto campus and participate and live your lives as part of the team and fulfill your obligations to the team. They've put you in this situation. So to then down, if for anyone who then downloads that responsibility onto you, who are forced to live under those conditions, um, to me, it seems completely unfair. Like we really have to hold, uh, if, we, if we want to get 130 people acting um, in exactly the so-called correct way, good luck in the United States of America right now. I mean, look around this country. It's not happening anywhere, and it's not going to be different in any population, including college football players. And that's not the fault of college football players. That's the fault of an institution that thinks it's necessary to put those individuals together at this time. And so I'm glad to hear that your institution is taking the, proper, the appropriate precautions. That is their responsibility to you. They owe that to you. That's their obligation to you. Um, and so, good. I'm, I'm glad that they're following through with it. Um, now, to shift just a little bit, your organization has put out a petition related to name, image, and likeness. Uh, I would love for you to share your views a little bit on your issues related to compensation for college athletes. So, you know, me personally, I just think the, and I think it's a sentiment shared with a lot of different college athletes, but especially in terms of name, image, and likeness, you know, it's been, the NCAA always tries saying, you know, we can't give student athletes this extra ben- these extra benefits. We have to make sure that, you know, they are students first. But then when you look at just a normal student who doesn't partake in any sports, if they wanted to say they played the violin and they wanted to give violin lessons to kids, they could, you know, post it on their social media uh, in order to get different customers. But if I wanted to, say, run a football clinic for, you know, high school football players, I wouldn't be able to advertise that on social media if I wanted to, you know, make money off of it. and. That's just one of those things where at that point, being a student athlete, you're at a disadvantage compared to regular students. 
for something as simple as using your own name or using your own social media to promote anything. Let me actually follow that. Because that's, as you point out, that is such a cut and dry case, right? It's just, it just seems so preposterous that you would be denied those rights. Mm-hmm. Do you, so, so yeah, I mean, I get it. I get it. And I, I think that anyone who doesn't, who claims not to get it is just being, is frankly, it's a bad faith position. But what are your thoughts on compensation more broadly, right? Because I actually feel like one of the weird things about NIL is that uh, it doesn't actually cost the universities anything for you to have NIL rights, right? Like it's actually mm-hmm. third parties that will be, would be paying you under those conditions. Yep. But at the same time, you are working for your university, you know, and ostensibly what you're receiving in return for that work is an education, right? Um, yep. And that's a, that's a complex question. Maybe we can get, come back to that. Um, but, you know, many people would argue that given the amount of revenue that is produced, especially in your sport, college football, and I mean, your university is a great example of this, right? Like the University of Michigan is making a lot of money um, specifically on college football. Do you think that there's any obligation of these institutions, like in a moral universe, right? It's a complicated, people want to bog us down in these complex questions. Like, how would you do it, right? Like, what would the economics look like? Okay, fine. But in a more moral universe, do you think it's fair that you aren't sharing in that revenue or what's your take on it? No, I mean, I don't, I do not think it's fair. You know, there's just such a, especially when say it was the somehow, some way the schools or universities and that NCAA could do something to where they were the product in which they were selling to people or that they were selling to people. That's one thing, but the fact that it's the players that is the product and the players are the only people who don't see any sort of like split of the extreme revenue that's being made Mm -hmm. by these schools. So it's just kind of, you know, without us, there wouldn't be any revenue, but at the same time, we're not seeing, seeing any of it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's. So this is where, why I really want. I want to shift gears now a little bit to something that, to me, is is fascinating. And it's it's weird because actually, what I want to do is start to talk about something that is kind of almost boring for you, perhaps. Because I want you to talk to us a little bit about like what your day to day life is like as a college football player. And the reason for that is because that's what I think that people miss on the outside. You know, they see they see you on TV, for instance, and think, "What a glamorous life, right?" Like I grew up, and I did. You know, it's funny. I actually I was a kid in Canada in Toronto who grew up loving the University of Michigan. I cheered mm-hmm. for the university. My dad went to university in Windsor and I cheered for the University of Michigan. Like, and I watched every Saturday afternoon. Like, I remember those Notre Dame games, everything. I loved the University of Michigan football. And it was absolutely my dream as a child to be where you are right now, doing exactly what you're doing, right? And, and it's easy when you're watching on TV, right? That, that, that makes sense. That dream makes sense. It seems like, oh, you're idolized, you're worshipped, whatever. It's what everyone wants to do. Football is beloved in the United States. But what people do not see from that standpoint is like what your life is actually like every single day, right? Um, and that's one of the things that I think fuels when, when I make this argument about and what you were just saying about compensation, like, like why might you deserve a share in the revenue is like, it's not actually just fun and games. It's hard work that you have to do day to day. That's why I would, I would love to, for you to share a little bit. And, and the first thing I w- wanted to ask about, because this is something I think is really fascinating. Um, the recruiting process. What is the recruiting process like? And, and how much, this is the thing for me, how much does the sales pitch of recruiting 
match up to the reality of life as a college athlete. Because when I talk to kids in my classes, to athletes in my classes who are on teams like you are, uh, I'm at Duke. Boy, they tell me some interesting stories sometimes. Well, so me, me personally, I was actually a preferred walk-on. So that's kind of my, that was my path to Michigan. Yep. So even still, regardless, you know, in all the different academic presentations, you heard a lot of different things about the different courses that were offered, the different programs, the different majors. And then I know, especially when you got to school, you realize that some of these majors only offered classes at certain times. And so for us at Michigan, uh, we have to really take classes from 8 a.m. to, let's say, I think 1 p.m. because football, everything football related starts at, I think now it's actually 1.30. So everything football related starts at like 1.30. So there's some classes that are only offered from, let's say, 2 to to 3.30 or from like four to six. So at that point, you're kind of at a crossroads because a major that, you know, you're passionate about and interested in has classes that are at the same time as football. So at that point, you have to really make a choice. And being that you're at the university, you know, on for football, you kind of have to stray away from what you want to do academically so that way you can pursue your athletics, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Um, all right, so you've given us, a, you've actually given us a great picture of, of how the academic piece works and um, how that manages with football, uh, how that kind of meshes with football. Take us through what a typical day is like for you during the football season. Like, I, I mean, let's imagine it this way. You, you're probably familiar, are you familiar with that, the day in the life of a college athlete um, mm-hmm. clip? The NCAA, you are, who, who isn't, right? Um, yeah. so the, the NCAA tried to sell to everybody in, a, in an absolutely ill-advised advertising campaign what a day in the life of a college athlete was. And of course, for college athletes and former college athletes, like, this was the most laughable thing in the world, that portrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's do, let's do your real life version. Like if you were to take us through waking up in the morning during the season and then going to bed at night, what does that day look like? So during the season, I'm trying to remember. It feels like such a long time ago, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, so sure. during the season, I had my first class at 8.30 a.m. So I wake up at, let's say, 7.30, uh, you know, get dressed, get ready, eat a little Usually I'd eat like a granola bar or something before that class. So then I'd be in class from 8.30 to 10. Then from 10 to 11.30, two days out of the week, I had a lab section or a discussion section for one of my, for one of my classes. So, you know, then I'd be in either lab or discussion from uh, 10 to 11.30. And then from 11.30 to 1, I'd have class so really from 8 30 to 1 i'd be in class if i wasn't then in between classes i'd go down to schembeckler hall uh get breakfast go in like the uh, norma tech norma tech pants just do some kind of uh treatment or not treatment but like recovery get ready for practice then you go from class down to facility at 1 30 You'd have we'd have our special teams meeting, then we go to offense defense meetings, then we get ready for practice, go through practice, 
Then at around, I think it was like 6.10, maybe 6.30, uh, we'd be done with practice. Then I'd go to the academic center for tutoring in my classes. And that would usually be from, let's say, 7 to 8 or 8 to 9. And then 9 o'clock, go back to my apartment, uh, finish like the rest of the studying, rest of homework. Then usually probably be in bed by during the season, probably like 12, between 12 and 1. And then that was kind of, you know, every day up until up until Friday when we'd have we'd be traveling to either traveling or getting ready, you know, staying at the hotel the night before the game. Then, you know, you kind of go through Saturday, play the game. Sunday, you have treatment, uh, you eat, then you kind of repeat the, repeat the whole process on Monday. Dude, that, that that's exhausting, man. Like the faculty complain all the time about how busy they are, how overloaded they are. But like, I am just, I'm beat just listening to you tell that story. Um, yeah, that's rough. <laughs> on, on that note, I, I've always like one, I, I, I'm always interested in talking to, um, to college athletes about the balance between football and school and the, and the, the sport and everything you have to give that you've um, so eloquently kind of documented and taken us through and the academic responsibilities. So like my question is how manageable for you has the balance been between football and school? And do you feel that there's an even balance there? Do you feel like you're giving uh, the same amount of effort or you you can possibly give the same amount of effort into both of those things. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, you hear a lot of, especially when you're young, you hear, you know, a lot of talk about time management, which I think is extremely important. Just finding a way to manage your time. You know, you could be spending hours playing video games every day, or you could find a happy balance between, or uh, spend hours, you know, socializing with people. But I think, you know, it's real important to find, uh, happy medium between you know social life school and athletics but i think what's not talked about nearly enough is kind of energy management mm-hmm. because as a student athlete you know you're waking up waking up really earlier than most people and then you're not able to go to bed as early because you just have so many obligations that yeah you know you either have to choose between getting a good amount of sleep or not fulfilling all your obligations. So kind of going through a continual cycle of day after day of just exerting so much energy at your sport, then going through a full day of classes in a condensed period of time, and then not having, you know, adequate sleep on top of that, you just mm-hmm. kind of, there's a lot of times when you're just mentally, physically drained. And, you know, it's hard to really put forth uh, effort that you really feel can be good enough to succeed, you know, in different areas. So it's like, okay, I got five hours of sleep last night because I was working on working on a project. Uh, I had to wake up early morning, early in the morning for a workout. I had class at eight thirty, so I couldn't even really get a chance to like eat a good breakfast because I have to rush from my workout to class. And then at that point, you're in class off of 
five hours of sleep, no food in your stomach, so you're just tired, you don't have a lot of energy, it's hard to really focus and pay attention. And then, you know, it's not like regular students after a long day of classes, if they choose to, you know, they can just go back to their dorm, go back to their apartment, kind of unwind. You don't have that opportunity because when you're done with classes, you're right back to football. So it's just kind of like you're going through your whole day, just really drained. And then for me personally, I've had situations before where, you know, I've had to wake up early in the morning for a workout, go through class, uh, go through practice. And then I have to leave practice like 15 minutes early because I have an exam that same night. So I'm taking an exam literally 10 minutes after I've showered after practice, don't really have a chance to eat, eat any dip, like food in between because you're not trying to leave practice, you know, early to the point where you're missing stuff. But at the same time, you have to, so you're leaving like later than you really probably should be in order to maximize your performance for that exam. But at the same time, you know, it's kind of what you have to do. So it's one of those things like you just deal with. And then, so for me, I'm an economics major. Mm-hmm. So a lot of classes I take, are on a curve and you know so i'm kind of being i'm kind of competing against other students in the class but other students you know they've had a whole day to kind of they could have skipped their classes they could have just really relaxed all day you know made sure they were in an ideal situation to take an exam and then you have me who's gone through a full day you know hasn't you can't really skip classes because you know once you start doing that, your GPA starts falling, then you risk being ineligible. So you just kind of have, you know, a bunch of adverse circumstances that lead you to maybe not do as well on an exam as you could. Not because, you know, you don't know the material as well, just because you're not able to put forth the same energy and effort because of everything you've had to go through that day. That is that is a honestly a phenomenal answer because I think that you have pointed to as you pointed as you yourself said you know people talk about time management people do not talk about energy management and that as as a faculty member who works with athletes frequently that is exactly the thing that I witness myself and feel like is constantly missing from these conversations that people are not appreciative of what you actually have to do energy wise on a day-to-day basis which you've laid out for us and it the thing that's so galling to me about it, I don't know if you hear this yourself, but what we have actually here as faculty, I can say, I, I don't know about at the University of Michigan, obviously I'm not there, but I mean, I can tell you at a similar institution, we hear the administration comes to faculty and says, the problem with education and college sport is student athlete engagement, they say. That is that the players just aren't willing to engage enough in their studies, right? That's what they mean by engagement. They're not saying it's too hard for them. It's just not possible to do well or to have the energy. They mean, yeah, they just don't, they only care about sports. They're not, they don't care about class and they're not willing to engage and put the energy or effort in that they need to. And so the problem is them, right? The problem is the college athlete, in other words. Um, and, you know, it, I, I hope that for people listening, you can understand why that is such bullshit, frankly, right? Because no human being under the conditions that you are living and you have laid out for us could possibly have the energy to give everything in class, right? No matter how much you want to give everything in class. If you're falling asleep in class, it's because you're human. And the schedule you just explained to us means your body requires sleep. 
in order to do the things that are demanded of you. And yet, when are you going to get it, right? You're not going to get it at night because you have all that homework to do and everything else. And just so the kind of the question that then emerges out of this for me is, and this is a tragedy as well, I want to say, because you are promised that the compensation you receive for your work is your education. Do you get an education in return? Do you get the education you deserve in return for your work? Uh, in my opinion, it, we don't. You know, guys on, on scholarship, you know, they say that, you know, in return for your being, in terms of, you know, not having to pay pay for school, you know, you play football, and then in turn, you get, you know, what they consider a free, air quotes around free, education. But when that education isn't necessarily aligning with what a normal student education would be, then at that point, you know, there's just something inherently, inherently flawed with that uh, frame of thinking. Yeah. And then speaking about being so drained from the sport, um, you know, that brings me to something else that it's really connected to our, the earlier part of our conversation when we were talking about the pandemic and the health piece, because as I sort of gestured to it that at that point, your sport, the sport you play is a sport that takes a toll on your health, right? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, you do not play football and not suffer physically in countless ways. Um, some ways that you can see and some ways that you ultimately can't even see, right? As you're participating. Um, and, I, and I think I thought it was pretty interesting that in the examples from the UCLA and other Pac-12 players that I was reading from before, um, that there was obviously some significant mistrust actually around the issue of player health at those institutions. And again, we've said this over and over again, as much as the NCAA may like put up the veneer of standardization and regulation, at the end of the day, each of these institutions kind of has its own culture to a very significant degree, I think. Um, and you've spoken quite favorably of the uh, culture of your institution up to this point, um, which is great. But I guess what I wanna, I w I'm wondering about is, um, given what those players have said elsewhere, given the amount of injury you folks are subjected to, given all the deeply concerning literature that now exists about the harm associated with football for brain health, are these things that you think about, that you carry with you every day as you're doing this work for the university? And also, how much pressure is there to play through pain and injury? Like, I know, I know that athletes put pressure on yourselves, right? I, I get that. You want to win and you want to win for your team. You want to you give everything for your teammates. That's part of being an elite athlete. And I understand that. And that's like, there's, a, there's something that's really noble about that as well. I really understand that. But I'm kind of thinking in this case more about like other external pressures that maybe put you in positions that you wouldn't choose to be in. You know, I don't think me personally, I don't really think of all the all the dangers and all the risks that are really associated with football and in my day-to-day -day life. You know, it's just kind of like I know, you know, obviously your body's not going to be 100% all the time. And I know that you know, there have been studies that have proven their substantial risks when, like, that you have to endure when your career is over. But me personally, I've never really been one to look at, you know, the negatives of things. And I just think that my love for football is so high that even hearing all those different risks, it's just not something I really that affect me. And then kind of on your other point, I think just playing through pain is something that, you know, we've been conditioned to do from such a young age. Like you always, when we were, when I was in Pop Warner, 
you know, our coach would always used to say, are you hurt or are you injured? And it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, yeah, like my legs hurting right now, my knees hurting, but you know, I can still, I can still operate. I can still run. I can still do everything I need to do. And I know probably the guy right next, lining up next to me, he's dealing with pain somewhere else. So, you know, I can't let him down. I can't let the guy to my right, my left down, the guy in front of me down. So you just kind of, after being conditioned all these years, and then knowing that the team's greater than yourself, it's just kind of something you just deal with and push through. Now, one of the one of the last things that I I, I want to get your thoughts on being in um, being an athlete yourself, being someone so invested in um, in the game and in um, college football and in, and in playing and and loving the game. Um, and seeing everything that's happening around us with this like COVID-19 stuff, I, I, I want to ask you whether or not, or, or what your thoughts are on some of the harms that may have already taken place with teams returning voluntary or not to, um, to practices and to workouts. If you could just tell the NCAA what, what to do, how would you deal with with the COVID situation? You know, it just comes down to having uniform procedures. Mm. Like if everyone- That's a really good point. If everyone, you know, if they would just display leadership and, you know, put out a statement saying that these are the mandatory guidelines that schools have to follow, then you can at least sleep at night knowing that your situation is not going to be Extremely, our, so at Michigan, let's use us as an example. Our situation is not going to be uh, extremely different than O State situation or Michigan State mm-hmm. situation or Penn State mm-hmm. situation. We kind of know that we're all approaching things the same way. But right now, we don't really, we're not really too sure what any of their different approaches are. So, in not knowing that, like you kind of have to just assume the worst and assume that everyone else is doing less than you are. So, for a school like us, you know, even though we're doing everything right, the fact that everyone else isn't doing everything right is what's going to ultimately be the downfall of the season. I love the work that you're doing um, with with CAU, and we're certainly going to be linking all of that stuff in the in the show notes. And there's a petition called "Wait, What?" NCAA student athletes need a voice in name, image, and likeness discussions that we will also be linking in the in the show notes. I, like, I just want to say like a huge shout out to the work that you are doing, um, uh, the work that Benjamin and yourself are doing, and and, and what you're trying to mobilize for um, athletes uh, and for for people. Um, that I think we uh, here on the show really hope have more say in in their working conditions, and I, I hope that um, you're able to mobilize and to bring people to help un- help us all understand um, what the sort of day in the life of of uh, an athletic laborer is, and and a college athlete and a college football athlete. So, okay. well, well th- thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. Absolutely. And solidarity to you and everything. Really, you're doing amazing work uh, and you should thank be proud you. of what you've accomplished already. You really should. Benjamin St. Just is a Canadian and a graduate school defensive back for the University of Minnesota and former defensive back for the University of Michigan. 
He is, along with Hunter Reynolds, who you heard from earlier, among the co-founders of College Athlete Unity, an organization seeking to mobilize college athletes to come together to fight for justice. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. One question we kind of ask all of our guests um, when they're when they're on is just how they've been dealing with the pandemic and how the pandemic has been treating you, um, because we're kind of talking to people from all over the world, really. Um, but how has the pandemic been treating you in um, in Minneapolis? Uh, it's been it's been a it's been a roller coaster of of of, of challenges, barriers, and um, and emotions and. You know, I was I was happy. I think I reported back here on campus June 6th. I was happy to finally be back with my teammate. I've been away for like what three months, and uh, finally be back to like doing workouts. And it was voluntary workouts, and uh, with a whole bunch of procedures to, to just access the facility and workout because of COVID. So at first I was happy, but then it started. You know, it started to be kind of a big burden and a whole bunch of uncertainties, and we were just like and kept in the dark about a lot of, of the current, about the current situation, what's gonna happen and all that stuff. And not to mention with that COVID thing, be like, you know, there was there was classes that I need to figure out. There was like, you know, the season that to figure out. There was like my family that, that the border is still shut down between Canada and US. And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, ICE with the Trump administration came out with a new regulation mm-hmm. that says that all, if all, if all classes on your at the university goes online, then F1 students, uh, F1 international students are not like they're not permitted to stay in the United States of America. So I was like, OK, well, I have three weeks to change my visa. I might get deported, you know, all that stress going on. So it's been very mm-hmm. stressful. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, I could only imagine that. I was once upon a time a student uh, also in the in the States at South Carolina. And I remember dealing with F1 visa issues myself. So were you at? Were you at home in Montreal? No, I was. Um, I was. Uh, so this was my journey. So basically, when I left here in Minneapolis for spring break, that was March six. I went to uh, I went to London, London, Ontario, to see my parents. Oh, the, for, yeah, for a the week. Great London. Yeah, <laughs> I went there for a week, and then um, and then they extended they extended the break because they're like, hey, let's see how this 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 coronavirus thing goes, and then they ended up uh, Justin Trudeau ended up or Prime Minister ended up closing the border, so I was stuck in London mm-hmm. for a month and a half, and then when I finally got my chance to leave Canada, I was I stayed. Um, I didn't have my apartment here at Minneapolis was not open yet. So I stayed at my girlfriend's house in Colorado, stayed there for two months. And then I reported back here to campus for workouts on June 6th. You might be one of the only people who wanted to leave Canada and go to the U.S. <laughs> as opposed to the other way. <laughs> I, I probably, yeah, I probably was. Huh? <laughs> okay, so there's so much that we want to get to in this um, in, in this interview, um, we're grateful to chat with you and hear about your experiences and your work. And I think there's no better place to start. Um, we just had Hunter Reynolds talk to us about um, College Athlete Unity, but I, I kind of want to get your take. Can you tell us about like what College Athlete Unity is and what it means to you, what you're trying to accomplish, and to what extent that is connected to to broad kind of social upheaval that we're seeing around us everywhere, really. So you're basically asking me, like, what do I want to accomplish by forming the CAU group with Hunter? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. 
Um, so basically, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk you through the thought process that happened a couple months ago with uh, Hunter. Um, we saw the uh, obviously we saw what happened with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and all the other people, and we were like, "There's in in this world in America in this society, sports is so big. It's 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 crazy. You know, we have uh, this social, especially our social media platform is huge. People follow us, people know our names and all that stuff, and we talk about sports twenty four seven. But then I said, "There's there's must be something bigger than sports in life, and and those issues needs to be." talked about especially us that we have a platform big like that that people follow us and listen to us so then i i call hunter i was like this we need to do something for the season and all that stuff and that's where we came out with this group where we would unite every student athlete from any sports any gender everywhere all together so then we can unify and amplify our voice so we can talk about those social issues and racial issues and justice and all that other stuff because we can talk about sports all the time but I feel like those mm-hmm. topics, they don't get covered enough and they're way bigger than sports. So if we all come together, our voice will be way bigger and we can use our platform to create positive change. So this was the thought process. And then um, we just got the ball rolling and then we just ended up having a whole bunch of people who wanted to join and like our missions and like what we're doing. And I think it I think has been doing pretty good for the past couple of months. Yeah. This is Nathan uh, Benjamin. Uh, so thanks so much for being with us. And my first question is actually, we didn't really get into with Hunter how big the organization is right now. How many people are involved? How how connected are you? Like, are we talking, um, you know, dozens of football players across the country? Do you have athletes from a whole range of revenue, non-revenue sports? Sort of what, what does the organization look like right now? I, to, to be honest, the, the, I couldn't really tell you an exact number because sure, we have sure. different we have different division, we have different uh, groups and all that stuff. But I, I can I can assure you that we have representatives from every school in the nation right now. Oh wow! Like that's how that's wow. that's how that's how big it is. And uh, we, we we I don't know the the article that we came out with Sports Illustrated for the name, image, and likeness that was created mm-hmm. by four organizations that combine together. So that's more than about 5,000 members all together. So that's just, wow. a, so that's, 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 yeah, that's all together. Well, so that's, that's really incredible stuff. And we, we talked with Hunter a bit about, um, you know, some of the broader context, like the fact that we've been observing a, a number of individual athletes kind of prior to the formation of your organization who have been taking amazingly admirable stands um, against issues, you know, at Mississippi, Mississippi State, uh, against the Confederate flag, uh, and all those sort of things, right? And so it's, it's, mm-hmm. incre- it's incredible what you're doing. And I, I just want to say first, like, so, so you know, um, that I, I have deep admiration for what you're doing. And also that, um, that you have so much power, uh, and, and college athletes have not wielded that power so like a great deal, I think, historically, in part because you also are in this weirdly precarious position, right? Where you don't really have, like, you're not treated as if you have power on campus. You're not treated often as if you have a lot of agency. People are always telling you what to do, when to do it, um, and all that, right? Uh, and, and also threatening, there's always a threat kind of, of like, you could lose your scholarship, you could lose your opportunity, all that sort of thing. And yet, you're also earning all this money for universities, right? And so, if you're not actually doing the work that they want you to do, then that's a huge problem for these large yeah. institutions. And so that's the way in which you do have power, right? It's like the, people are telling you that you don't have power when in fact, it's, kind of, it's almost like exactly the opposite of the truth, which is that you have a tremendous amount of power. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we're in this really bizarre moment though, right? Where we have the pand- pandemic conditions and college football players have been asked to be on campus 
when frankly, like, you know, I teach at Duke, the rest of us aren't the faculty, <laughs> other students are not being asked to be on campus. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet you folks have been across and you like, in, you know, in the plural, you across the country at all different institutions have been asked to be on campus at a very dangerous time. Um, so I'm just kind of curious how you have kind of processed that, if you feel comfortable with that, if it feels appropriate, or if it feels like something that kind of you all have been forced into that maybe isn't entirely just. I'm going to be quite frankly, there's, I have two sides to this. Obviously, um, like you said, you can see how hypocrite it is because some of the staff and some of the regular students are not back on campus because it's not safe, but we are here. However, we're here on campus, and I think here, personally, at Minnesota, we take great care of a player. We have a great uh, uh, structure, and it's well-organized to make sure that we're safe and all that stuff. But how long can we sustain that structure? Like, if students are not able to come back this fall, if we're not able to bring back 55,000 students this fall safely to have class and all that stuff, what sense that would it make for us to stay on campus and practice every day and play games? You know, there's a conflict yeah. of interest right here. As much as I want to play football, I feel like, you know, there will be a conflict of interest right there because how her safety is, is or safety concern are lower than the regular students, you know? So it's, you know, it's a tricky situation. Now with all this stuff going around, like, and, I, I've been tweeting about this and we as a, like on the show have been tweeting about we're in the middle of a raging pandemic. Like that is, we cannot deny that. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable going in to work every day um, knowing this? Uh, as much as much as it, cause I really like, I really like the structure and, and how we handle things here and like the transparency from a culture. So that make us feel like good yeah. and all that stuff. But from a general picture, if we have a season, that's what we, we was talking about as leaders and all that stuff in, in the conference. Um, it will be one of the most stressful and maybe not enjoyable season of our whole life, you know? Like every yeah. day, you every week you'll wake up, you'll have a two, two, three tests, waivers to sign, masks to wear, and every week you'll be stressed to 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 not get the virus and not get in contact. That's the thing. You cannot even yeah. you can test negative, but you get in contact and then miss two, three weeks because you have to quarantine. So every day you'll be like, this might be the end of my season because the season is already cut short. So it'll be so stressed. And and not to mention that's just me personally. There will be no fans. The border will still be closed. My family will not see yeah. me until next year. You know, yeah. so so I, to be honest, mentally we have to be ready because it, it might not be a, the most enjoyable season. It will be very stressful. I, I think you you may be in one of the most um, interesting um, and potentially like uh, kind of tragic positions where your family. You said your family's in London, uh, London, Ontario. That you you just said it. You may not be able to see your family for several months, um, yeah, because uh, because of what you're doing. I, I think that puts you in like a a very interesting position. Have you thought a lot about that? I just realized that to be honest, because I was mm-hmm. like, I was there were so many things thrown at us, and I'm like. Um, I think someone mentioned in our group, like, "Hey, is it? Will, do you think it will be possible to have access to um, to online uh, websites to, to watch the games and all that stuff for a family? Since the fans, there will be no fans." And then I was like, "Yeah, that, yeah, 
I'm like, oh, like, yeah, that is that is right. I mean, my family needs some some sort of like ch- channel or network to to to, to watch the games because I won't be first. I won't be able to see them, and second of all, the border is not even open, so they can't even come to yeah. see. Them. So, yeah, that, 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 that that's yeah. another thing that just got it on added on the list. Yeah, and like I think a, these are a lot of things that people, um, sports fans, college football fans, um, in general, don't really think about, right? Like they well, don't really think about the 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 issues and the barriers and the challenges that you face as athletes. They just like want to like drink their Bud Light and watch uh, a football game on Saturday, right? Mm-hmm, um, yep. It, it's a it's a kind of constant uh, critique that I have of of college football fans in general that they like fail to acknowledge the harm or the issues or like the personal troubles that athletic laborers and college athletes are, are facing every day. Um, I, I had a question that was kind of um, spawned by a tweet from Michigan state offensive lineman, Jordan Reed. We asked Hunter about this as well. Yeah. He tweeted guys are testing positive across the country, left and right. Why is there still a discussion on a season? Why is it taking so long to make a logical decision? Hmm. Let me think. Let me guess. Revenue. When you read a tweet like that or hear a tweet like that, what what goes through your mind? The crazy part about it that was I was just doing some research on it and um, Big Ten. The Big Ten last year with their 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 contract with network contract and what we did and the sales and the tickets and all that stuff, they made seven hundred eighty nine million dollars. Which is mm-hmm. the the most in any conference? Um, they're trying to save that right now. That's what they're trying to do. You yeah. know, they're trying desperately to try to save it because they'll put them in a hole if there's no season, and uh, they're not they're not willing. They're not down to have a season in the spring because that's going to push a lot of things back and all that stuff. So he's not he's not wrong. What his tweet is not wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, he they're trying to make it safe as possible. I mean, that's what they're saying. We don't know. We were certainly, but definitely, like it would be hypocrite of me. It will be a lie of me, and not tell you that they're trying to have yeah. a season for their, to make sure that they 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 have their money. You know. Yeah. Now, now so so Rudy, uh, to, uh, a kind of similar story. Rudy Carpenter has reported that. I'm sure you saw this on Twitter that Pac-12 football players have created this like list of demands, right? Yeah. And they're asking like the this was a a super powerful statement made, I think, um, or or is a super powerful statement made by those um, those players. They're asking for things like 50-50 revenue share, six years insurance of health insurance upon graduation, better COVID testing and protocols, et cetera, et cetera. A sort of whole bunch of things to deal with the context that we're currently in. Do you think like the the their calls would be enough um, or are enough? Um, for for what college athletes are going through right now, uh, I think I think I will have to dig in a little bit more and do a little bit more research mm-hmm. on like on like mm-hmm. what what exactly they're demanding and all that stuff. But I can yeah, assure yeah. you that before we step foot this season for one game or training camp, something like that, mm-hmm. somebody will come out, some sort of organization, some some school, some sort of student athlete organ uh, association will come out with a list of demand or something like that. Because um, uh, because you can't keep student athletes out of the equation in the dark and just tell them like go ahead and go play and then it's not structured and we don't know what happened all that somebody will come out somebody somebody will say 
something and say, hey, there's nothing that's going to happen until we have this, this, and this. And, you know, I don't know. They're asking for, for revenue and all that stuff. They might not be it. It might not. It might just be your safety, you know, because a lot of people like to complain and say, oh, you college football players, you have scholarships and all that stuff, and now you guys want to get paid and all that. You know, you're selfish. Maybe maybe those student athletes just want to make sure that they're safe, you know. They just want to make sure yeah. that they can go out there and have at least some fun, you know, and make sure that it will be structured. They know what's going to happen. So I think that's what's going to happen before the season starts. Yeah. In the, in your in your view, what do you need? What do you need as an athlete to feel comfortable and safe with going out there on the field? Oof, that's a that's a big question to me because it's a lot. Of, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> it's a it's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, ooh, I gotta. Right now, I need this. I need I need some sort of I need some sort of uh, some sort of schedules. Just a, just a structure to make because mm-hmm. hey, we've been going day by day for months. And it can't yeah. just keep going day by day, you know. We gotta, we have to f- maybe make sure that we have some sort of test that is accurate that we'll be able to use. How many times we'll be tested? That you know, there's also how we're we gonna travel, where we're we gonna play, how how many fans, and who's gonna, you know, all the. There's so many questions. I think just to resume it as in a category, safety of the player, I think is the main thing right now. Making sure that you you come out if if they the Big Ten or whatever university can come out with a structure organized that says this is your safety this is what you will get as resources this season to make sure that everyone is safe. I think we'll I think we'll be good. I think I think we'll be you know we'll I I, I would I would be happy with that. Yeah. Now now I I I'm very aware of confidentiality in in this, so I don't want you to like out anyone. But like, has anyone in your program, um, whether it be uh, the like the the Minnesota football program or the broader athletic department. Has anyone tested positive? Uh, I think I think the minute I think the uh, University of Minnesota came out a couple months ago when we first got back here with an official statement on Twitter and Instagram to say how many people we had. I think we tested yeah. 120 some 130, and then it was like what seven seven mm-hmm. that that I had it. I saw that on the internet. It was uh, yeah. I think it was it was public records. So, so it like knowing that the the virus is already kind of in and around. Are you cognizant of this going into workouts and stuff? Are you like thinking like do you wipe things down a lot? Are you thinking that the, like you're at risk by going in and and working out and doing the things you have to do? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, all the time. I always, I mean, we, they make sure also that we always have our mask and that we always wipe everything down. I wash my hands all the time because as much as they talk about that, like you know, it's you, you can't die from it and it doesn't do anything. Like, I don't, I just don't want to risk my, I don't want to take any chance, you know, I don't want to risk it, you know, maybe, but if, you know, I could get it and then give it to somebody else and then, and then it spreads and then my whole team is shut down or, or, or like somebody that has some sort of problem, respiratory problem dies, you know, so I have to, I have to make sure that I do my part and wash my hands and clean all my stuff and all that stuff. Cause I'm not one of those people that take it slightly until a tragedy happens, you know? Have you have you yeah. been hearing team officials themselves downplay how serious it is when you say that about you know like young people are unlikely to die from it that sort of thing is that something that you're hearing from the team or is that just kind of in the media? I hear that in the media. I hear that outside. I didn't hear that in our team. I think that's a good thing. Uh, I didn't hear that from our third director, any any doctors, any any coaches. So that that as as a student athlete, as a football player, that 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 makes that makes us. Uh, 
a little bit more uh, comfortable and a little bit more happy, you know, that our, that our team is taking it serious. Because I heard a whole bunch of other things that are kind of crazy on social media and at, you know, other schools and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm speaking for Minnesota, University of Minnesota. I think we took it very seriously. Listen, we are the first to be super critical of the narrative that like um, Gundy and similar people have have come out and said like young people, they're healthy and therefore like they can withstand COVID and all that stuff because like we don't know what the future of the, we don't know the long term effects of any of this. So like that narrative doesn't ring for us it, it, it it's it's something that it's actually i think very problematic to think like that because we have no idea um so it's it's actually nice to hear that you that you're in your context you're not experiencing that sort of same same narrative um yeah one of one of the things that i wanted to kind of like pivot off the covid stuff for for just a moment um is your your organization kind of uh, just put out this petition um, and we talked to Hunter very briefly about this petition related to name, in, image, and likeness. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's going to be linked in the show notes. It's called, wait, what? NCAA student athletes need a voice in name, image, and likeness discussions. Yeah. Can you share your views on issues related to compensation for college athletes? Um, oh yeah. Uh, trying to make sure, trying to make sure I touch on every point, but not too long. I think, uh, name, image, and likeness, um, is a basic right that we have as student athletes and that we should have. And the reason why we came out with this petition is that every single decision, every single thing that goes to Congress or goes to the NCAA regarding our rights, our freedom to use our name, is that ne- we never get consulted. Our opinion is never in fact We never get, you know, a phone call. We never get a seat at the table, but it's all right that they negotiate. So we felt like we needed to come together and say, hey, can you at least consult us? Can we have our opinion heard on this? Because that's our, na- our name, image, and likeness. And we saw that LeBron passed a bill in California that it was one in Florida too mm-hmm. that would help those, you know, those student athletes that maybe don't come from wealthy backgrounds, you know, maybe benefit and have, uh, you know, benefit and have uh, a better lifestyle coming uh, coming out of college. Because I mean, what two percent of us gonna make it to the pros? So if we can make some money coaching kids online or or or, or raising money for organization, or making money of social media, you know, I think that should be a basic right, you know. So um, so so yeah, that's 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 the that's the the push behind the petition that we came out with. Yeah, no, that's it's a great concept, and, and we said it was with Hunter as well. Um. As you've pointed out, this is this is a basic right denied that's that's afforded everyone else in this society. So why is it denied only to you, right? I'm um, so. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems really clear that it's a completely bad faith argument. Um, if if for anyone who denies it. Now, um, my question for you is: Is it enough? Do you in fact deserve compensation directly from the universities themselves? Or is it enough for them to just sort of route it through third parties as name, image, and likeness might? Can you can you repeat that? I didn't hear the last part. But... Sure, sure. I, I, what I, all I'm saying is, do you think that the university should actually be paying you directly for your labor, or is it enough for you to get the name, image, and likeness rights? I think if I think of right now, I think to be honest, if I'm if I'm fair, we all know that like we bring a lot of money to the schools and all that stuff, and we like maybe deserve a little bit more and all that, but getting paid. 
is a very different, a very big and different topic. You know, when once we start getting paid, we need a union. We become employees. We're not amateurs no more. We're basically professionals. So the whole game changed. So there's so much that goes behind it. Obviously, we all know that we bring so much money and so much resources to the school, and the the the, the disparity gap that what they get and what we get is 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 crazy. But I think name and likeness. Like you said, is a basic right. It's a good start to say, hey, we're trying to make this equal. We're trying to make this, you know, equity with the student athlete, trying to give them a little sum. And I think we can move on from there and see what we can do and all that stuff. But um, I think paying athletes is is a way bigger deal than people think it is. You know, like we will we will become employees at this point. So the game is is, is flipped completely. Yeah, no. And I see that. It, it leads me to want to ask you, because you were kind of getting at this a little bit, this question of you having a voice, right, and a say in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, do college athletes deserve union rights? Is that something you'd be interested in if that was on the table? Union rights. Ah. I think, I think was, it, was it Northwestern that tried to do that a couple of years ago? That's and right. Got you got it. You yeah, got it. yeah, Northwestern. Okay. Um, I don't know. Maybe union sounds good. I don't know. Maybe there's another route that's easier and that's more friendly for everyone, but definitely some sort of association, union, group, or whatever that can have a seat at the table, that can talk, that can talk through those decisions and at least have the, the vision and the opinion of the, 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 the student athlete body heard and, 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 and took in, and under consideration. You know, we have all those decisions are took without us, and then we just, you know, we just, you know, pick up the consequences or just go and just do the thing. So I think, like you said, some sort of group, association, union, whatever we want to call it, but somebody at the, uh, somebody needs to be at that table where they take decision and say, hey, maybe that's that's not the in the best interest of the student athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, so when we were talking to Thunder, what we did was we went through um, kind of like a day in the life of a college athlete um, to sort of think about. Because we, our feeling is that most people think you have a really sweet deal, right? I mean, and I just mean like average fans. They think you get to play college football at these big universities, you're on TV, you get a free scholarship, right? Like what could be better? You're living the high life. Um, and, and what that, of course, ignores is the work you do, right? And how hard it is. Um, and the fact that, and this is the thing I wanted to get to, you know, your compensation then is supposed to be your education, right? And, and I mean, and I look at what you've done. You know, you've been at the University of Michigan, an exceptionally prestigious academic institution, and then the mm-hmm. University of Minnesota as a graduate student, another exceptionally prestigious institution. Um, there's no doubt, uh, and that's really admirable that you've kind of charted that course. But and this is not a personal question in the sense that I'm not asking you like, have you been trying hard in your studies? I'm asking you as a college football player, right? in the conditions that you have to operate within and you have no choice, is mm-hmm. it possible for you to get as much out of your education as you deserve to get out of it, given that it's your compensation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because um, there's three things I think that can come up to my mind right now is uh, schedules and requirements. Um, you when you come in at football, as, as as bad as it sounds, when you come in to play college football, you're a football. They say you're student athlete. You're an athlete student, basically. Um, if your your schedule with your class don't fit with football, they'll change it. So that means that's a lot of majors that goes out the window. 
uh, third, your your second year in activity, your football activity, practice uh, games and workout streaming, film or whatever, a lot of the times where you could be networking or attending events and all that stuff for your major or for your future future career. And uh, third, uh, because of that narrative that you're a student athlete and a lot of the schools that, you know, they preach that you'll make it to the NFL and all that stuff and only 2% make it, a lot of people don't invest in their major and what they want in their career and they take easy majors. And then when they don't make it, they end up with just a piece of paper that represents nothing because they didn't network and didn't have the chance and didn't have the resources because they're so focused on football. So that's one, personally, that's one of the narrative I'm trying to change. Uh, I went to University of Michigan when I was younger. I took a, a grown man decision, as I call it. I took I went to University of Michigan because I knew that if football didn't work out, at least I had the network and I had the diploma for University of Michigan. So I went there, and then my 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 sophomore year when I got injured and I didn't play football, this is where I started working on my off the field things because I realized that I can't just be a football player all my life. I can't just be labeled like that. I'm more than that. So I started working on off the field things, make sure I had my degree, and now I went to I transferred to the University of Minnesota and got my master's in sports management because I'm trying to, you know, show the kids and show the other people back home and show all that stuff that, you know, you're a football player, but you're, you're, you're more than that. Make sure you use all the resources and all the things that they give you because they might not tell you all the time and they might tell you that you're a football player and all this is important, all that stuff, but football ain't going to be there all your life. So. Yeah. I hear you loud and clear and I completely, I respect where you're coming from on that. Um, it is, it's an exceptionally difficult situation. Um, for you to navigate. And it sounds like you're doing a, a tremendous job of it. So you really, I, I congratulate you for that. But one thing that you've, you mentioned there is this question of, um, you know, you were, you were injured for a season, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's football. Football is such a punishing game ultimately, right? Like you're just not going to escape without injuries. Uh, and it's, so it really connects with this sort of whole conversation we were having about the pandemic too, right? I mean, it's just an extension of the sort of health and welfare issue. And one of the reasons I brought up the union rights piece is it seems it's always bothered me that you know you're not you're not protected by basic occupational health and safety kind of standards, right? Like when people are at work, if you treat you know you are earning all this revenue for these institutions. So in that sense, like if you're generating revenue, clearly um, this is a business. But because you as the workers of the business aren't actually classified as workers, not only do you not get the compensation that workers get, but you also don't even get the protections that workers get either. And so we've seen yeah. that during the pandemic, you know, and especially I, I, it seems like a lot of the Big Ten schools are taking it quite seriously, which I'm really glad to see. But I mean, if you're looking right at like the, in some of the ACC and SEC schools like Clemson, especially University of North Carolina, we've seen some really egregious um, treatment, it seems to me, of the athletes and the attitude. And you know why we know? Because the coaches tell us. They tell us how seriously they're taking it, right? Like Dabo mm-hmm. Sweeney, he speaks to the media and he tells us exactly how seriously he's taking the pandemic, which is that he thinks that God is going to resolve the situation and it'll be over in a couple months, right? And you know, if, that, yeah. if that's the way he's looking at it, then his players aren't protected. Um, but, but the problem is that someone else has to step in. It shouldn't be up to Davos we need to determine if you're protected or not, right? Like there should be some mm-hmm. kind of external force, like for all workers to protect yeah. your, your basic rights. And so forgetting about the pandemic though, I, you know, this worries me with football in general because of how hard the sport is on your body. And so what, what I wanted to ask you is like, you know, head injury, right? Head injury is a huge part of football and there's yeah. not much that can be done about it 
it, it, it haunts me every time I see, I look at the students in my classes because I have football players in my classes who I really care about and I respect just like I respect you. Uh, it's yeah. like the problem is not the players who are giving everything to everyone all the time. But like, I worry for you, and and I just wonder, how do you how do you cope with all the harm that comes from football? Uh, that's a that's a big question. It's very it's very stressful. It's uh, uh okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm dig in because I don't want to talk about like I want to talk like generally to about everyone, so because I, I, I don't know their experience, but I'm gonna talk about mine. Totally. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, sophomore. So basically, sophomore year, University of Michigan. Uh, I got injured, you know, nothing crazy, not even a head injury, you know, just like regular, like pull hamstring. Um, I pulled my hamstring in bowl prep and uh, wasn't treated properly, you know, like I didn't receive usually like those kind of injuries when you don't treat it properly, they become lingering, you know, they become more serious and all that stuff. And I kept pulling my hamstring again and again and again and all that stuff. And I trying to get like some more help, but it just didn't work out. And um to to show you how it is, college football is really a business. So instead of investing a little bit more time and treatment and 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 patience to to get me back, you know, because I I give my 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 I give my everything to this team, like to the team, you know, to to, to football, to play and all that stuff, blood, sweat, and tears. Then um they they gave up on me, they gave up on me, and um and basically um. I had I had to I had to transfer at this at this point after that because because they didn't have my best interest they have they didn't have my health uh uh didn't have my health in their in their equation so I had to get outside help I had to get outside rehab treatment that was that was not from the University of Michigan and I met with some doctors and made sure that I was all good and all that stuff and this is why I moved on because I I saw that. I saw the real face of the business as a young 18, 19, 19 year old kid. I saw that, you know, all this stuff that they say in recruitment and that other stuff. Sometimes that from my personal experience, though, you know, it didn't, it didn't come in handy because I had to do it on my own. And there's so little that I can say about this situation because I'm still a college football player, but best believe that I will let people know once I'm a, you know, professionals and I don't have any ties to the NCAA about what, whatever happened. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm not saying much mostly because, um, you know, I'm just, I'm feeling for you here and it, on, on two levels, like, because it is absolutely unforgivable that you were ever put in that situation, right? That's the first reason. Um, there's just, mm-hmm. there's no justification for it. There's no excuse. We are institutions of higher education. Our job is to be nurturing you. And somehow these institutions, these as I said before, prestigious institutions, right? Institutions yeah. that market themselves as being the finest in terms of what they are offering young people like you, then turn their back on you despite the fact that you were giving everything to them. Um, it's, it's just, it's unforgivable. It's unconscionable. And then on top of that, you're not even allowed to say a word about it, right? Because otherwise it's all for nothing, isn't it? Right? It's wasted yeah. <laughs> because then you yeah, just get yeah, no yeah. opportunities, right? I mean, you've given everything to them. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing more that you can or should have to say on that, but, um, I just want to underline, um, you know, just how tragic it is and how much is really owed to you. You know, I mean, we actually, we wrote a piece, uh, Derek and I in our, in our, um, 
and our co- other co-host, Johanna, we wrote a piece recently for the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is a publication that's read by uh, a lot of people in the world of universities, you know, like faculty, administrators, those are the kind of people who usually read it. And I'm just like, yeah. the argument we made there was forget about canceling the college football season. And you and I may disagree on that. And that's fine because you've given everything and you want to get a payoff for playing college football. I totally understand that. But from where yeah. I sit, right, where I haven't invested that, all I see is the health and well-being of people like you. And from where I sit, I just think we gotta, we've got to shut this down because no one should be getting sick as a consequence of playing football, right? That's, that's my view. So that's why I would say we should cancel the season now and protect you and other athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just that. This is the point I'm trying to get to is our real argument there is forget about whether or not we cancel the season now. College athletes deserve some kind of compensation for what you were put through this summer when no one else was forced to be on these campuses. You know, it's, it's, it's not, they cut off your health insurance, right? I mean, you don't have health. They don't pay for your health insurance once your time is finished. As Canadians, we know, like, thank goodness, if you, if you ultimately go back home, I mean, I I can imagine you want to play in the NFL, et cetera, but let's Mm -hmm. imagine you go back to the CFL, right? At least you'll have health care. We know that. But if you're still in the United States, these universities aren't giving you anything despite what you have given of your body to them. Um, and so, you know, I just, I, I guess I'm just trying to say, like, not only do we think that what you're saying is tragic, but like, if we are to look at this clear-sightedly and in a moral way, the only way to understand this situation in good faith is to say that college athletes like you deserve to be paid for what you were put through, and you deserve to have health insurance covered for life by these institutions, and more. Um, so honestly, it's like, it's like, this is like a long winded apology almost. Cause I feel just complicit, even as someone who works at these institutions, it's just, it's just unforgivable what you've been put through. Yeah. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And for, 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 <laughs> for a 2% chance of touching a lot of money, man. So, um, if you make it, that's amazing. You did it uh, for the 98% of the kids that go back to their hometown with maybe a diploma or not even a diploma after all they gave. Uh, there's a huge gap right there. There's, there's some, we need to fix it. Totally. And you know, I, I've actually talked to, for my own research, I've talked to a lot of former college football players. And one of the things, the themes I heard from them, and it was really fascinating because you know what they started with? They would often tell me, how awful the NFL is too, <laughs> in the sense that you're also treated as like an object, right? You know what I mean? They're just, you know it. They're just trying to extract as much from your body as they can, right? The teams are because it's a business and, you know, that's the point of the business. And they get that. As you, just like you, all the players absolutely understand exactly what's happening. But after railing against the NFL and the media and how everyone makes life like miserable for them, essentially, what they would say is still, the moment they got their first paycheck from the NFL was such a profound relief because they felt, you know what I mean? It was like they were doing all the same things in college and at least you get paid for them now once you're in the NFL, right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing, things are a lot better when you know that you will get that paycheck to, to put food on the table and make sure that you're writing all that stuff. You know, it's, it becomes a job, you know. I, all right, I go through all those things, those trials and tribulations, all that stuff. But at least, you know, I get my reward at the end, you know. So that's, that's, that's the NFL. That's, that, that's the, the good part of it. That's it. Exactly. Well, listen, Benjamin, it has been, uh, it's been a joy to talk to you. Uh, and it's a privilege for us. Um, you maybe we didn't, we gave this preamble kind of when we were talking to Hunter, but um, we're talking, we're talking uh, about college sports all the time on our show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yep. it's, a, it's a real honor for us to talk to the, 
people like you who are actually living it. And we know how difficult it is and how scarce your time is. So A, I just want to congratulate you on the incredible work that you're doing and the leadership you are showing, because I think it's going to have a profound impact on college sports. Mm -hmm. Uh, And B, I just want to wish you the absolute best moving forward and to tell you that we here on this show are in complete solidarity with you uh, and everything you do. Uh, So please, good luck uh, and all the very, very best. All right. Thank you very much for having me. It was was an amazing time. And uh, anytime you need uh, need anything, uh, I'll I'll be here to, to share my knowledge and information. Miles Lester is a preferred walk-on men's basketball player at Wake Forest University, where he recently completed his redshirt sophomore season. Previously, he played one season at Rice University. Miles, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. I uh, appreciate me having me on and uh, excited to be on here with you. Awesome. Well, listen, the first thing I want to know is, actually, where are you right now? And how are you holding up during this pandemic? Uh, so I'm currently in Kansas City. So uh, we played on the Tuesday in the ACC tournament and we lost on that day. So our season was over. And uh, the next day was when kind of everything started getting canceled. So I was actually driving home during that. And I kept checking my phone just to you know, see where I was at or whatever was going on. It's a 14 hour drive. So I ended up stopping like three days. But that's when kind of everything started to happen. Started checking my phone, saw the ACC the ACC tournament had been canceled, but they're going to start doing it without fans. And then other conference tournaments started getting canceled. Then when the whole NBA thing happened with Rudy Gobert, that's when, I mean, we were texting in our team uh, players group chat, like, whoa, something actually might happen where they start canceling sports. And like, I never envisioned it happening, but obviously it was smart long-term to have that happen. So I'm in, I drove about 14 hours to get back to Kansas City and been here ever since. Haven't really left my house except to uh you know do some some walking running uh there's a court near my house so that's where i can go get shots up and everything but can't really go inside anywhere and pretty much just staying around my house and working out near my house that's wild uh, my first question is actually what is the experience of a, co- a college athlete on a remote campus right now? Um, like, I think for most many of our listeners, they may not even know like what your obligations would be at this time of the season. Your season just uh, just ended. Do you have team obligations, or do you, do you have to keep up those obligations right now? And what's it like being a student uh, on a on a Zoomified campus? <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, it's been pretty weird. So normally, so like I said, our season was over. Uh, you normally get about. Last we had two weeks, two or three weeks after that, where we kind of had some free time. And then you get back into, I mean, you can't really do hardcore practices, but it's a lot more individual training stuff. So you'll probably have three to four workouts a week uh, for an hour with coaches where it's more individual-based, skill-based stuff. And then you still are doing, this is when you start upping your your lift schedule workouts. So last year during that springtime, we were pretty much lifting every day with uh, our strength coach. So obviously doing that remote has been different because we haven't been able to do that kind of stuff. But um, we still, we were doing two to three, we would do a weekly team check-in on Mondays for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then Tuesday, Thursday, we were doing a film session. So we would have a different type. This was all on uh, WebEx and Zoom and that kind of thing. So we would have like a game and practice film from last year and we'd focus on something each film section. So uh, last Thursday, I think it was like, layups and like finishing at the rim stuff the day the 
session before that is like passing decision making. So that's how we've been able to kind of stay in touch, um, stay in touch with each other and that kind of thing. And as far as students, uh, just like being a student, it's been pretty interesting because I think a lot, most of my classes now aren't exactly meeting. It's more professors are, you know, either recording videos and you kind of teach it to yourself or it's just, you kind of teach everything to yourself and, you know, you have these exams. I I have one, my marketing class still meets on Tuesday, Thursdays, and then I have a once a week class on Tuesdays. That's a fully discussion class. So that one's still meet. But besides that, all my other classes are pretty much teach it to yourself, which I kind of enjoy because, I mean, there, while you're at school, it's pretty difficult to pay attention because, you know, you're practicing in the morning and then you're having to go right to class. You know, you're, you're pretty much tired at all times. You don't get that much food in your system during the day. So like during the school year, it's a lot more difficult. You end up having to teach yourself stuff because you can't pay attention as much in class. Whereas when it's online, you know, I'm, I'm in a quantitative analysis class. Like I can't really pay attention during class to that stuff. And now that I have lecture videos, if I don't understand what's going on when I'm doing the homework or whatever, then I can actually go watch his lecture videos now and learn and be able to look back and do that kind of stuff. So I found it to be pretty beneficial. I know some people feel differently, but I kind of like the online class thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Like uh, it's, it's wild to see the transitions, the sort of quick move to remote teaching and, and its effect on, on um, students. But um, just kind of switching gears off of the coronavirus um, stuff. Um, we're, we're really interested, um, in hearing about, um, some concrete details of, of your experience. And I think we want to start from the beginning. Um, and we want to ask, um, about the recruiting process. Um, what is that recruiting process like, uh, and how much does the sales pitch of recruiting match up with the reality of life as a, a college athlete? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, recruiting is a pretty crazy thing. Uh, I got my first recruiting letter my eighth grade year going into freshman year of high school from uh, Wichita wow. State, which is where I'm from. So, like, I mean, I was never a big time recruit for those other guys. It's, you know, nonstop from age 14 to 15. So, uh, I mean, from from the beginning, it's kind of like that. You know, the first your freshman, sophomore year, you can't have any. I don't think you have any contact besides kind of general letters or if you reach out to them, then they can respond. But then. Once you hit, I don't know if the rules change, but it's like June 15th of your your sophomore going into your junior year is when you can start actually, you know, having conversation with coaches and that kind of thing. So that's when it kind of changed. And uh, yeah, I had I had a pretty good amount of schools that recruited me at first and dealt with some injuries when I was at prep school and didn't play AAU. And uh, AAU is a big thing. So I was injured during that year. AAU going into your senior year unless you're a big time guy, it's pretty much where you make your name for uh, most guys that don't have a lot of scholarship offers is that AAU period is where, you know, for what I wanted to go to a high academic school and um, the Ivy's Patriot Leagues, those type of schools, they kind of need their classes set in the fall. And so that, that summer period is the best chance to be seen. I know for a lot of guys, I mean, recently the, the NCAA has decided to do something with AAU where it's more focused on those high level guys, it seems like, which to me is disappointing because AAU is really where, you know, D3, D2, those low made, low level division one guys get a chance to, you know, shine or get a chance to actually be seen by coaches. And so the more opportunities they get to actually be seen, the better chance they have of, you know, getting a scholarship offer, getting something that they actually enjoy. But recruiting in general, I mean, it's pretty crazy. 
you it definitely, I mean, coaches want to sell you on, you know, they want to make you come. So at the end of the day, it's, mm-hmm. it's more, it's just, they want to sell you on what they have to offer. So a lot of schools, it's, you know, what stands out about that. If we're a, at Wake, we're a great academic school. We're in a, you know, we're in a big time ACC conference. So that's kind of two huge selling points you have. Now we have new facilities. So that's kind of, if you're a coach, you want to sell that stuff. And so, you know, you got to identify kids that actually, for Wake, you got to identify kids that want to be there for the academics too mm-hmm. in other schools. I mean, I was at Rice before that and it was the same ways. You need kids that want to be there. And for college athletics, a lot of time it's very difficult to be able to balance being at a school like Rice or a school like Wake where you're competing against some of the best academic students in the country while still playing for an ACC basketball team and having that pressure of, you know, you got to be one of the best teams in the country or else you're not going to have a good season. So it's definitely, uh, it's definitely an interesting thing to be a part of. Now, is there, I've, I've heard from some students, um, that I've, that I've worked with before that there can be a little bit of a shock when you get on campus and like the real practices start because you actually, my understanding is like some, you go to, you go to practice during a recruiting visit. So you think you're seeing what it's like to be a college athlete. And then you come onto campus and you go to real practice. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's fair. I, I still remember my first practice at Rice. I mean, it killed me. I think it was like an hour and a half maximum. Like it, I was dead. It's a whole different level. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's because when I went on my visit to Rice, they, it was after the season. So they just did kind of like an hour workout type thing. And then you know, that's, that's kind of what it is in your summer practices, which is when I went to Rice. And then now that first one, it's a whole different level. I mean, in high school, most kids, you can kind of get away with not being 100% competing or going as hard as you can a lot of the times just because you're so much more talented or better. When you go to that level, I mean, you got to be 100% the entire time. I remember I did like, I was doing some drill and I was sweating. I thought I was working hard. And then one of the kids was like, getting on me and then I looked up and I realized I just wasn't even going close to the speed that everyone else was going at so it's it's definitely that first first few practices are a shock I mean that whole summer for me I struggled my my freshman year summer just because you have so much to learn and you got to learn a bunch of different things and you're getting used to being on your own as far as the whole college situation so it's definitely a shock and I think that's why we see a lot of you know these big time athletes as freshmen struggle because they're just not used to that and there's just They've been so used to just being more athletic and more talented. But once you get to this level, everyone's athletic and talented. So you got to separate yourself somehow. So that's the basketball side. And I, I totally get that. that I, can, I can only imagine how difficult that is. And um, the strain of coming, as you pointed out, to one of these challenging academic institutions. You know, when I showed up at the University of Toronto uh, as an 18-year-old kid, I was stressed out about my peers in the classroom, period. I wasn't, a call, I wasn't an athlete. I was just, you know, I was there for academic reasons, but I was stressed out about the academic experience, right? And we were hearing the same thing about the fact like, oh, in high school, you may be getting A's, but like that, you're not going to get A's so easily here. Um, incidentally, you know, that may, that may not compute for people from the Ivy League who are listening to this, where we have massive grade inflation. But let me tell you that at like Canadian <laughs> universities like the University of Toronto, uh, those A's are hard to come by. Uh, I want to point that out. But um, the point I'm trying to get at here is... I think it's really hard for people to understand, and I, and I think you were getting at this before, it's hard to understand what the day of a college athlete actually looks like. I would love for you, during, like during the season, for instance, could you take us through 
what your just the regular day of a college athlete looks like, and then maybe also what a game day looks like. Yeah, so in the fall we uh, we practice at six forty five a.m. So you got to be there. You got to be on the court fifteen minutes early. So I normally woke up at like five forty five to six uh, for practice, and so you know you go to that. We normally went two and a half hours or so. So we get out at nine thirty ish, and I had class at ten and class at eleven, and then another class at like one on like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So on those days, I mean, I literally was getting out of practice at 930 and would have, you know, about 20 minutes to get a shower and get changed and get breakfast before I went to two classes in a row. So it's, uh, it's definitely hectic. I mean, you gotta do that. You gotta make sure you eat. I mean, we joke about all the time. Like a lot of times you, when you have some free time, you have to choose between, you know, eating or sleeping. And now, I mean, Wake has a huge nutrition center that helps us because we're able to get snacks after practice. But most schools don't have access to that, really, only the, you know, Power 5 schools. So for a lot of kids, and, you know, they have to make that choice of do I eat or do I do I sleep whenever I get free time? Because you're not – I mean, I can't sleep very well at night, so I normally am going to bed at, like, 11, 12. Plus, you have homework, so going back to just, like, a typical day. So I get out of class, you know, sometime around 1 or 2, normally – you lift three to four times a week, so you still have to lift in the afternoon. Uh, you have other obligations. I didn't, luckily, don't have any tutoring obligations now that I've been in college for three years. But every freshman, most of the sophomores have tutoring stuff that they have to go to in the afternoon or at night. You got to make sure to get your meals in at some point. So, and then after that, you know, you do homework and you try to get to bed at a somewhat decent hour. But like, if I had I, mean, I took accounting in the fall when we had practice at 6 a.m. There are days where I was up studying to one or two for accounting and then would have to wake up at 5.45 and then go to practice and then after that take an accounting exam. So it's definitely, I mean, I'm thankful to be playing at it, but it can, it can be a struggle sometimes trying to balance, you know, making sure you sleep, making sure you eat right, making sure you do well and stay alert in classes and then also performing on a high level on a basketball court. And then for uh, for game days, I actually, I love game days because it gives us a lot more free time, honestly. Uh, so we normally have, we'll have shoot, we'll, we eat four hours before the game. So if we play at seven, we'll have our pregame meal at three, which means we'll normally have um, shoot around at like 2.15. <laughs> so shoot around will be about, you know, 15 to 30 minutes of just getting some shots up, uh, getting stretched, that kind of thing. And then we'll normally watch film after that. And then uh, we'll have our pregame meal. Then you have, we don't have to be back to the arena until an hour and a half before the game or like an hour 15. So you have a little break in that time. So that's a good time. A lot of guys like to get naps. And I normally would try to do whatever homework I had for the, the next day during that time. But just depending on your schedule, you know, that's a good time to get whatever you need to get done, done as far as, you know, if you want to get some rest up or, that kind of thing. But those, the night before games, if you have an exam the next day, it's a struggle. Cause like I said, if you're playing at seven, really you only have an hour and a half during your day. And then the game's over by nine 30, you have to get a post game meal. In, and then, I mean, it's pretty difficult to after a game to go do schoolwork. Cause if you win, then you want to be, you know, happy and celebrate. I want to go study for an exam. If you lose, you're normally pretty upset. And so you're not really thinking about studying, but you got to be able to do it. I'm I'm really interested in the, in kind of the last thing you you just talked about in terms of like after the game and I just have a like a 
more of a, a question that I'm just curious. When you're playing on the road and you have, let's say, an exam the next day, um, what's like the the typical? How, what time do you get home and like into bed? Um, uh, so we we chartered or bust home whenever uh, whenever we play on the road. So if we play, we had uh, I think we played Syracuse at 9 p.m. and we flew home after. So there's times we're I'd say half our road games we're getting back after one or two a.m. And then I mean if you have a 9 a.m. maybe you can get out of going to it, but any class after 12 you definitely have to go to. I had 11 a.m. and I remember we got back like four and I had to go to that. I mean, I'm not complaining about going to class, but it's just tough when, you know, you're, you're getting back at 4 a.m. And it's, it's hard to sleep when you get back because you just you were on a plane and you can get some sleep on the plane. I normally I can't sleep on planes, but some guys were able to do that. But, yeah, you're getting back a lot of times after one or two. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you still have to you have to try to do homework on that plane or you have to try to do your work at some point or sometimes you just might have to come back and. I don't know, pulling all night or stay up late. One of my roommates mm-hmm. had a psych exam one day when we got back pretty, pretty late. So he was up. He like went to the library at like three a.m. Wow, that this actually highlights, I think, one of the really interesting um, sort of pieces of rhetoric that we hear, particularly from administration, um, that there, that there's a problem. Um, with education in college sport because of this so, like sort of so-called student athlete engagement problem that like student athletes aren't engaged. Um, but it sounds like from what you're you're saying that there may be some other factors beyond your control that make it like hard to even think about school in the first place. Um, so my question is um, basically, do you agree with this? Do you agree that there there might be other factors? And what are some of those factors that might actually be negatively impacting this educational experience that is supposedly being offered to you? And, and just to cut yeah, in I for a moment, sorry, sorry yeah. just to cut in for a moment there, uh, I want to just add that, because um, I think this is a great question Derek's asking. I've experienced this firsthand as someone working in one of these institutions. When the problem is posed to faculty, like what is the issue of working with student athletes? The problem is, the engagement of the student athlete. The problem is not the structure of the institution. Um, so sorry to interrupt, Miles. Go ahead. Uh, no problem. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's something that hopefully we need to figure out is, you know, I think it's one, like I've been mentioning, a lot of times you're tired when you go to class that it's hard to engage when you're doing that. I think, you know, a big issue is that, yeah, we talk about education, but at the end of the day, oftentimes we're prioritizing athletics over education which is what i think is a huge issue and why you know there's something like the nil the uh, name image likeness needs to be passed because at the end of the day we can talk about education but when coaches are making you know 20 million dollars over four to five years when uh when teams are bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to a school it's hard to pretend that you know it's all about education so that ends up being, you know, guys have to prioritize watching film instead of doing homework or getting extra shots up or, you know, going to the training room instead of going to tutoring. And then so I think that's a huge issue is that we need to fig- find a way. I mean, I don't have the answer to this to make education if we want to be about the student athletes to make the student part just as important as the athlete part. So I don't know exactly how that is, but like right now, in my opinion, that doesn't work because I think we prioritize the athlete part over the student part. So one way, I mean, I think 
from a student athlete perspective, obviously we can be more engaging and I would challenge, you know, any student athlete to be more engaging as that's obviously a valuable part of the college experience, but also it's helpful when professors are understanding of that and try to make, you know, student athletes more engaged instead of, you know, going like, oh, they just don't want to pay attention because, you know, they're lazy or something, which I'm sure that, I don't know, I'm not going to say any professors have that stereotype, but I think that well, some do. that's something well, I hear right. from, yeah, yeah, I, think, I mean, I hear that from students like, oh, they're just like lazy, that kind of thing. So I would assume some people think that too. And so I think trying to get out of that and actually, you know, engaging with them, talking to them, you know, checking in with them after classes or just send them an email. But that means that everyone would have to buy into, you know, making it more about the student part than the athlete part. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. I agree with you on that. Um, so you actually have a particularly interesting spot because you are um, one of the kind of, even the smaller handful of people across the country, not a handful, but I mean, on each team, it's a handful who are playing in a high revenue sport. Um, and um, by the way, something we maybe can get back to is the difference in your experience between being at a, a power five school as you now are versus uh, maybe, a, would you call them Rice a mid-major? Probably a mid-major. Yeah, it's a mid-major. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one interesting thing to talk about maybe a little bit later, but where I was going now actually is the walk-on experience, right? The preferred walk-on experience, because we're talking about high revenue sports. That means that your team is part of a larger system that is producing a ton of revenue, especially now that mm -hmm. you're in power five. There is compensation, supposedly, in the form of scholarships in this education we've just been kind of critiquing um, to the scholarship players, <laughs> but there's no compensation of any kind to the walk-on. So I'm kind of curious how you read that. Do you feel like walk-ons are more exploited than uh the scholarship players and also why do you do it yeah i mean first off uh i do it because yeah i've loved basketball since i was a kid um you know, i've always enjoyed being around the game playing the game the people you get to meet from it uh at some point i might want to go into coaching so being able to make those connections through playing basketball has been something i enjoy i mean winning even when you're not i played at rice and you know, got a good experience playing there. But even when you're not playing at Wake, uh, I mean, one of the best nights of my my life was when we beat Duke uh, this year when they were ranked in the top ten. I didn't play a minute, so that's just how dare you? you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, hate to say it, but that I mean, being UNC too was fun. But like, you know, just winning, being a part of that. I love being competitive. Being a part of that just is one of the reasons I still play. But uh, speaking more to the you know walk on experience, I think it, it it's definitely difficult. Um, I mean, you can't. Me and one of the other walk ons on the team wanted to try to make some some extra money. We're gonna try to work kids out. You know, we couldn't do that due to NCAA rules. So you know, we're not getting any financial stuff from the school or for the hours we put in. Yet you know, we're not putting in any type of different effort than any of the other kids. I and mean, we're still waking up at 5.45 for practice. We still have the same amount of lifts during the week. Um, the freshman walk-on that we had on this year's team still had the same amount of tutoring hours as everyone, all the scholarship guys. I mean, you're still doing all the film sessions. It's not like me and the other walk-ons weren't on the uh, film sessions we've been having uh, since, since we went um, online or whatever. Um, so you're not you're not having a different experience, which to me is interesting because you're paying for it and you have no way of using, you know, your name or any of that stuff to try to do anything outside of basketball to make any form of income for yourself. I mean, I think if you have 
you know, the passion and the dedication to try to make some money, whether it's, you know, training kids or, you know, we also try to start a couple of businesses and haven't been able to promote that at all. Besides just putting our, we can't even like put it in our Instagram bio or anything. Like, I mean, I can't even mention to you what our ideas are about because technically that's like against the NCA rules, which, you know, I don't think that should happen for scholarship players, but I definitely don't see why that should be happening for walk-ons who are getting, you know, no sort of financial compensation. So I think that can be a frustrating thing and something that, that's been annoying for me because, you know, I want to try to do something when I'm not playing basketball as far as, you know, working or starting a company or that kind of thing. And I enjoy that. Like, I enjoy that kind of stuff. And I can't really do much because the NCAA rules and yet I can't really make money from basketball either or get anything paid for for basketball. So I'd say that's been one of the more difficult things to deal with as a walk-on. And obviously there's the reason there's not that many in the country is because it's a huge sacrifice and as much fun as it is to be a part of a, you know, an ACC program and stuff, there's also a lot of difficult times where, you know, you're putting in three hours of effort. It doesn't feel like anyone notices it or really cares about it because you're not ever getting to do much on the actual basketball court in front of, you know, the 10,000 people that are watching these games. This is, it's really wild to hear this because like universities, have historically celebrated all of their the young student entrepreneurs and and people who are going out and and creating and building these companies uh, at universities and it sounds like you're in a situation where it's the exact opposite so this kind of begs the question um the 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 sort of big question that maybe you would expect um that we'd like to ask is is whether or not students student athletes should be paid um, and I think a second more important question is, is this something that athletes discuss amongst themselves? And if so, what are those discussions like? Yeah, so first off, um, yeah, I think I know a lot of people try to like make it so difficult to talk about this compensation thing. I mean, I think it's pretty simple with name, image, likenesses. If you want to, you know, put in the effort to go do something outside of basketball that you get rewarded for. I mean, I'm not saying guys should be able to take $200,000 you know, go to this school or this school, but when we're signing autographs for, you know, an hour or two and not getting any sort of financial payment for it, like, I don't understand that one. Like, I think, I just think there should be some form of compensation that if you're doing something extra that is not basketball related and it can end up leading to, you know, people making money, people can sell our autographs and that stuff. And we're signing them or, you know, required to sign autographs sometimes. Like I think we should get, you know, $12 an hour or something for that because we're using our name image likeness. And like I said, if I want to go train kids and use my name to promote that, like I feel like I should be able to, you know, do that to try and get some form of compensation. So I would say, I mean, obviously, yes, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to happen at some point and I hope it happens, um, especially with the G League thing going on now where they're paying kids 400000 and giving them a college scholarship. I mean, people want to go to college for a year, those big time guys, because at the end of the day, they're, you're never going to have that fan experience that you have playing at uh, Duke or playing at Kansas or playing at Kentucky in the NBA. So that's what sec- sets college apart. But at the same time, kids are going to take getting paid $400,000 and an education and getting the top level training. So the second thing is, yeah, I mean, we talk about this kind of stuff um, all the time. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we talk about in our group chat all the time. Um, There are the SAC committee, which is like the student athlete advisory committee. 
my two of my or th- all three of my my suite mates were on that and so they had I know they had a thing with like all the other SAC committee people at uh, all the other schools and all the sports with someone from the ACC department about how name image likeness, you know, might progress in the future and what they envision happening. So I think, I mean, I think it's something that's going to happen. It's something we talk about. Um, I think it's something that definitely should happen. I mean, people talk about cheating all the time and how awful it is, but like, are they really cheating? Cause they're really just giving people the compensation they deserve for the hours and revenue they bring into the schools. Yeah. I love it. I love how you put that. Um, and actually I, I also really appreciated your earlier comments about NIL because I, I see it exactly the same way. What we're actually talking about in terms of name image likeness rights is you being compensated for the additional labor you would perform in order mm-hmm. to receive that compensation. This isn't like, this has nothing actually to do with the larger question in my eyes of explo- the exploitation of college athletes, which is to say that you are in fact doing labor currently and it is producing revenue for the institution and you're not seeing that revenue. So that's one question. And I think uh, it's totally fair for you to kind of skirt that. You're in a particularly awkward position to speak about that. But from where I sit, that's still a completely unresolved question when it comes to NIL, right? So for me, that's actually not a place I would necessarily want to rest, NIL. But if we are talking about name, image, and likeness, I mean, there's just no argument against it um, beyond the NCAA's crusade to uphold amateurism and ultimately, I think, defend the fact that they want your unpaid labor in the first place. That, to me, is kind of where the NIL thing starts from. They don't want to have this so-called slippery slope, right, of saying, well, these people can be compensated because they're not actually amateurs. But when it comes to actual name, image, and likeness rights and what goes into it, you are just doing more work and getting paid for that more work. So um, there's just, there's no, as you say, there's absolutely no reason why that shouldn't be, um, that shouldn't be tolerated by the NCA moving forward. Um, but you made, a, you made some fascinating points about the G League too, which I, re- I really wanted to get to because I am curious at this point. We have, as you pointed out, what we've seen just this year, uh, just in the recent weeks, a week or so ago, two weeks ago, um, that what the G League decided to do is to massively increase the offers they were making right, to incoming recruits, people who would otherwise be freshmen at colleges, let's say, next year. Uh, and I think that they, a couple of years ago, they'd already tried offering something like $125,000 to a couple mm-hmm. players. And I think that that was, it, it enticed one or two, but clearly it wasn't enough to really change the landscape. But as you said, we, we're now hearing $400,000, $500,000, at least for the top players. And as you also pointed out, we're hearing about uh, subsidies for their education, right? Moving forward. So mm-hmm. it does seem like that is a, a really different kind of um, package that could have an impact. And I think we're already seeing it has an impact. So I, I'm, I was curious whether you guys were talking about it. It sounds like you are. The other thing kind of connected to that that I really want to know about, because this is the other thing that's happening in the G League, is that the G League is voting on union rights, right? To unionize within the NBA Players Association. Are union rights something that you guys ever talk about? Because certainly we know that in... Um, we know that in, at Northwestern, right, there was the attempt to unionize private universities, and I know we know that that failed. Um, we also know that we just heard recently that Duncan Robinson talked about how at Michigan in uh, 2018 that they were considering boycotting the open practice that the teams held in front of the media as a message that could be sent about this sort of larger issue of exploitation. He said that he rallied his team but couldn't get the other three teams on side, um, and they didn't want to do something on their own. But obviously, this is something that's being talked about. Nigel Hayes talked about it at Wisconsin. 
Do you folks ever talk about that piece? Because to me, it is so vital to, in terms of if we actually want to protect your your health and well-being, which we'll get to, if you want to really fight for your compensation, if you want to have some control and agency over your working conditions, you need to be a union. Yeah, honestly, we have never talked about that. And I, I mean, I just, I just learned a bunch of stuff I didn't even know about, which shows one that, you know, we haven't had the education to learn about that. And two, that we're just ignorant towards that. I mean, I've, I haven't heard it. I've, I've heard of the Northwestern thing. I had like a vague idea. I didn't hear of the Duncan Robinson thing, any of that. I mean, I think all that stuff is stuff that we need to start talking about more because when you go on Twitter, you know, you go in the media, you see all the NIL stuff. And that's why we're able to form opinions on that is because we're actually able to read about that stuff. I mean, I've never seen anything about any type of union NCA stuff. Uh, I know like there's been like that video game thing that happened a while back and I've heard something vaguely about Nigel Hayes, but like that's about all I know. So like, yeah, we don't, we don't talk about it, but I think that is something that in the future could be beneficial or not could, would be beneficial. And hopefully we can do that through, you know, some form of education and we need people to start talking about that more because we don't talk about it at all. Yeah. Oh, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely agree with that. And I, I, one of the other questions that I had, um, or I, I constantly think about is there's a lot of talk about not wanting to compensate, um, college athletes because that would, um, or supposedly change the whole dynamic of the campus, right? You'll have this sort of class, different class of, of students uh, of college athletes who walk around and they're getting paid um, highly and that will separate them themselves from other students on campus. So I'm just curious um, how you would describe the relationship between um, college athletes and other students on campus. Uh, Wake, I I think Wake's an interesting, interesting uh, dynamic. I mean, I think they, they get along pretty well from my understanding. I mean, I, I've, a bunch of non-athlete friends. I mean, a lot of kids that I hang out with aren't athletes, but that could be different for me because I'm a walk-on. But I know most of the kids on my team, you know, hang out with kids that aren't athletes or, you know, have good relationships with kids that aren't athletes. But I think that's different because we're at a power five school. So these kids are kind of, mm. or student athletes are, you know, admired by the non-student athletes. And so I think at a school like Rice, there was really no relationship. I mean, the only kids I was friends with were athletes. Um, I mean, my two closest friends were basketball players, and that's kind of who I hung out with. Whereas at Wake, it's been different where, you know, most I roomed with basketball guys and hung out with them a lot, but a lot of my friends too were non-athletes. So I think, I mean, I I don't think it's an issue at Wake. I don't know about other schools, but at Rice, it definitely, I thought was an issue was that there just was no um, relationship between the student body and the student athlete body. I think there was a lot of uh, jealousy and animosity at Rice because a lot of the student athletes that get in, get in because they're athletes first and, you know, somewhat good students second, whereas every kid at Rice pretty much, you know, gets like a 32 or above on their ACT. I mean, there was no shot. I did well at Rice, but there was no shot I would have got in if it wasn't Mm -hmm. for basketball. And like, I'm a pretty good student. So there's kids on the team that, you know, probably worse students that were able to get in, whereas there's students out there that even the worst students at Rice probably all got better ACTs and high school GPAs. And, you know, the best kids on the basketball or football team did as far as that kind of stuff. So I think 
at Rice, that was a bigger deal at Wake just because, you know, I think athletics is such a bigger deal that it's not as much as an issue. And I mean, I don't know how it would be at, at other schools. I'd, I'd say at Ivy's, it might be an, an Ivy League school. I could see there definitely being some general student animosity towards student athletes. But as far as like the big time athletic schools, I, I don't think there's as much. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And, and I found mixed experiences over the years because I often do have athletes in my classes, as well as obviously students who are not athletes. Um, and I actually would say a few years ago when I first came, there was probably more tension, partly because in my view, the conversation, this kind of larger exploitation conversation was not as prevalent in the media. And so uh, there was this sense among non-athlete students that the athletes were actually like excessively privileged, right? They had all these privileges that they didn't necessarily deserve. They got all this gear. They got this great dining mm-hmm. hall. They got this or that, right? And it was like kind of unfair. And then, of course, the athletes were sitting on the other side saying, like, you have no idea what we have to go through, right? Like, we're actually <laughs> the ones who are being exploited here. Um, and so there was a weird, like, what I felt was really strange about it was in Cameron, and that is what I'm referring to as Cameron Indoor Stadium, where Duke plays basketball. Right? In, in Cam- yeah. for, 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 you know that, but for some of our listeners, <laughs> people, um, you know, in Cameron, these these athletes were fetishized by the fans, right? Like the fans adored them, right? In those moments, of course, there was no ambivalence. Like, no, we love our our Duke basketball players, right? Like we're cheering for them, but. But somehow when we stepped out of that stadium, something weird happened where there was a bit more tension. I feel like that's receding a little bit in recent years. And so what I'm seeing more is like a lot more empathy, frankly, from other students toward the athletes, especially my classes have kind of honed in a little bit more, frankly, on the labor issues. And so we're talking about it more directly. And when student, once the students start to hear about it, there's no ambivalence. Like by the end of the semester, everyone's on board, on side with the student athletes, uh, the college yeah. athletes, once they really know what's going on, what the reality is. Um, but here's the other, okay, here's another reality I want to dig into. This is all, this is like one of my big issues, the question of injury and the physical harm piece, because like mm. what I will always suggest is sure there is a compensation issue. There's an economic exploitation issue when we talk about college sports, that's clear as day. But one aspect of exploitation is if we have some kind of exchange between two people, right? It's like this kind of unfair benefit that accrues to one. But it might also be a kind of um, totally disproportionate level of harm that accrues to the other, right? So that benefits can be accrued by both or by one side. And I think that's a piece that's often missing in our conversations about high-performance sport in general, but that get magnified, especially when we're talking about unpaid or uncompensated college athletes. So my questions are, how much pressure is there to play through pain? And not naming names, but have you seen examples of players being pushed to play through physical harm? Is that part of the culture, the institution, right? I don't think this is unique. When I ask this question, I don't think this is unique. This is not about like one institution or one person doing it, but part of a larger system, kind of like what goes on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for football, it's definitely more of an issue, but just even for basketball, I mean, it's always going to be that stigma in sports that if you don't play through something, whether it's a sickness or, you know, uh, an ankle sprain or something like you're soft or, you know, you're weak. And I, yeah, that's a, that is a huge issue at, at every sport, at every college is that, you know, you're pretty much expected unless you can't physically walk or like can't physically use a, like for basketball, you need to be able to shoot. I mean, even if your shoulders hurt, you're still expected. I mean, I played in high school through a torn labrum because, you know, my coach said, even if you can pass, you'd be 
better than if you were sitting out. So yeah, even in high school, that's a thing like at a public high school. So I think that will always be an issue in sports, which is one of the reasons why there needs to be some form of compensation, whether you don't even have to compensate as far as like to giving guys money right away. But like one, one thing we, uh, my roommates talked about on that sack thing was maybe, you know, a certain percent of money goes into a portfolio that you can have access to in like 10 years. Cause for most, there's a lot of kids out there that are on that fringe professional level and have some form of injury and, you know, never make the money that they could have made if they were able to go right into the NBA or right into the NFL or right into the MLB. And I think injury is a huge thing because often we get, we make injuries worse because we're forced to, I mean, I'm not saying we, but athletes in general are just forced to play through pain, play through pain because at the end of the day, I mean, it's not that they're just forced. You want to, you want to play through pain a lot of times because you want to win and you don't want to let your teammates down and you, you know, you've been building something where you've been practicing together for a whole year, going through everything together. I mean, if you have an ankle sprain and you can play and you're an important part of the team, you're not going to sit that game out, even if a coach isn't forcing you to play. So I think, I mean, I think injuries have been extremely, you know, have been a big part of one of the issues because there's not really any form of protection unless there's something that I don't know of, but I don't think there's any form of like insurance I mean, there might be, again, I, I'm not sure, but I don't think there is. And so I think that's something that in the future could be extremely beneficial. And I mean, for not for basketball, but for football, I mean, I think that's the biggest issue is the whole concussion thing and, you know, CT. And we're seeing that you can develop that from, you know, the age of when you start playing football, which for most kids, I mean, I played football in like sixth grade. So I think I was 12 or 13. So you're playing football from a young age for most college athletes. They've they're playing football. I mean, it's been at least eight to 10 years of you know getting hit in the head, that kind of thing. And so for football, definitely, I think they need to figure out some way to figure out, like find some way to compensate or give some form of insurance protection for a bunch of guys. And, you know, I just read, I just finished uh, a book about the, the opioid crisis, uh, Dreamland. And so looking at that, I mean, I'm sure for basketball, it's definitely not as big as a thing, but I think for football, not knowing really much about football at Wake, but I'm sure at a lot of places they, they use pills and use that kind of thing to, you know, get athletes to keep playing through pain. I mean, it talked about it in the book, so I don't think that's anything like revolutionary, but I just definitely think, you know, trying to play through pain, no matter the circumstance, as long as you can, you know, walk or use your body is something that is pretty much expected. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And uh, we, we certainly talk a lot about that football issue. So I, I see that precisely the same way that you do. No question. And just to, to, to pick up on the insurance piece you talked about, uh, my understanding is that you do have insurance coverage while you are um, an athlete at your institution. That's one of the things that's kind of been um, worked out over the years. But the big issue for me is once your time is done, then that insurance coverage also ends, right? And so mm -hmm. for athletes, this is a huge issue because of course, if you're playing through pain, right? These long-term injuries get worse, right? And when you're 20 years old, it's actually much easier to cope with the conditions you're experiencing because your bodies are young and capable of more. Um, but even by the time you reach my age, right? Mid thirties, uh, it hurts a lot more. Right, the pain is there, and the, the the injuries become far more debilitating, and that's kind of in the best case scenario, honestly, right? Because we have to just you know just the overuse injuries that happen to pretty much any athlete, um, not taking into account as you're saying like. 
the head injury piece, especially that football players face. Uh, and also if you have grievous knee injuries, right? Things like that, that might yeah. have the same back injuries, um, all sorts of things of that nature. So yeah, I, I agree with you that a health insurance, like it seems to me that it's incumbent upon these institutions to offer long-term, lifelong, frankly, health insurance to the people who sacrifice their bodies um, for these institutions to literally make revenue for these institutions. Um, Okay, so we mentioned that there's been some recent developments. One of the recent developments was what was happening in the G League. There's been increased um, discussion about uh, NIL legislation, and it looks like the NCAA is opening up to it. And we've kind of explained, you explained beautifully um, why that matters. But you know, there's one other piece that I think you are perfectly well positioned to speak to, which is apparently in May, we are going to have a conversation about the transfer rule. And for those who are not familiar, that's right, in the revenue sports, but I believe only in the men's revenue sports or maybe include hockey too. So I believe it's men's hockey, football, and basketball. The rule is that if you want to transfer to a new institution, and you, again, correct me if I'm wrong, because you, I'm sure, know the ins and outs of this. Um, if you're transferring to a new institution, you must sit a year. So you must take essentially a red shirt year um, of, you know, you can participate, I, my understanding is, in team practices, drills, all that stuff, but you absolutely are prohibited from participation in games for an mm -hmm. entire season. And then you may pick up after that time. But the discussion that's emerging right now is that the NCAA may waive that rule. Like all of a sudden, in one year, they're going to be kind of like an amnesty and it's going to be free reign for anyone to transfer as they see fit. And the coaches are losing their minds over this. <laughs> yeah. Um, because that's going to be a lot more work for them. I mean, I think that's the big issue. And they're scared. Oh no, you know, we had this, <laughs> this completely. Um, repressed labor market basically right like with no freedom or autonomy whatsoever they were just constrained to labor for us for the duration of four or five years or they would be heavily penalized if they tried to exercise some kind of freedom um, and now suddenly they have freedom like other workers <laughs> god forbid what do you make of all that you transferred yeah so i think i i think that's something that is definitely interesting um i mean i kind of enjoyed not enjoyed, but I thought it was beneficial to sit out of here just because I was going from, you know, uh, Conference USA school to an ACC school. So that year sitting out is definitely beneficial, but I also enjoy a lot of stuff outside of basketball. And so that's what got me through that. For a lot of kids, basketball is kind of their number one thing. And I know it can be incredibly frustrating to sit out. And my thing is, I don't get why you have to sit out a year for revenue or for because you're a college athlete when a kid who has an engineering scholarship at Rice can transfer to wake forest and still be on an engineering scholarship at wake forest and they don't have to you know do anything for that like i i, I mean i've never understood the whole sit out of thing and uh, i mean if a coach can leave if a coach can go from you know one school to another i don't see why athletes can again they're saying you know i mean i'm not gonna say anything about any sort of coaches but the kind of the you know the kind of general thing is if kids are have free will to leave and go wherever and play then you know, late in the process, I'm going to be forced to maybe lose a kid and have to not have, you know, a full roster or something like that. But a coach can leave late in the process and then a kid's stuck at a school that, you know, a lot of times you commit to schools for the coach, not for the school, which I think is an issue. But at the end of the day, that's just kind of how it works uh, for a lot of people. So you're going to a school for a coach and then that coach is leaving in May and June. And, you know, it's pretty much almost impossible to be able to 
you know, leave at that point. And so then you go there for a year and then a lot of times you see kids transfer after a year in, in those types of situations. And then they have to sit out another year and you're just taking a year away from them where they could be able to actually play basketball in front of people. And you can't travel during that sit out year either, which can be frustrating at times because, you know, you want to be on the road. You're still practicing all those hours. You want to be with your teammates when you're going through, even if you're not playing, you still want to be in the locker room, you know, supporting them on the bench and, when you're not traveling at all, you're missing half the games in a season and don't you have that opportunity to do that. Well, with that in mind, you are going through a particularly bizarre situation right now where <laughs> these questions are relevant because for those, I'm sure most people don't realize, yesterday is my understanding. Maybe mm-hmm. it was the day before, but I think it was yesterday. Nah, or, yesterday. Yesterday, your coach was fired. What does that feel like? What does that mean for you? Are you sad about that? Um, tell me something about that. Yeah, it's it's definitely a difficult a difficult thing. I mean, um, so we found out. I I normally, like I said, I don't sleep very well, so I normally sleep into like eleven. And I woke up randomly at like eight thirty, and we had a text from our director of ops that we were having a team meeting on a uh, Zoom at nine a.m., which was ten a.m. Eastern. So we had. Um, we had that meeting and like right when we were getting on, I uh, checked Twitter and saw a tweet from Jeff Goodman, who's one of the basketball kind of notable basketball news guys that, you know, Coach Man had been fired. So, you know, Coach Man, he got on the Zoom, uh, talked to us real quick. And then uh, our AD, uh, Mr. Curry, kind of handled it from there as far as what the process is after that. And uh, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, Coach has done a lot for me, and I appreciate him, you know, giving me an opportunity here. Um, and it was definitely something that kind of caught us off guard yesterday. But it was it had been what over a month since our game ended, and we hadn't heard any, you know, formal confirmation that he was coming back for sure. And so that kind of left us in limbo the whole time, as far as knowing whether or not. Um, He'd be back as, you know, there had, I mean, we see, we check Twitter, like we see that stuff. Like we check Twitter and, you know, ESPN, and like we see stuff all the time, you know, other schools and our school talking about, there's people in general talking about whether or not coaches might get fired. So, you know, we, we had been seeing that stuff for about both the years I've been at Wake. It's kind of been, you know, in the public that there's a possibility of that happening. And so, you know, like I said, I mean, it was kind of when it happened, it was kind of shocking as far as, you know, didn't expect it randomly on a Saturday. But um, there, there just had been so much talking. We hadn't had any sort of confirmation that he was coming back. So I wouldn't say like completely shocked me or anything like I had been prepared that it may happen. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a disappointing thing to, you know, wake up to on a Saturday. But uh, you know, Coach Maine's a good guy and he's a good coach and, you know, he's had a bunch of success as a player, as a coach. So I'm, I have full faith that he'll be able to find, you know, another opportunity where he'll have success. Now, d- does news like that change your relationship to the team or like maybe for other athletes as well? Like th- how important is the coach to your quote unquote buy in to 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 the team? Uh, I mean, I think we've the guy, the guys we have left. I think we're all, you know, bought in on wanting to. I mean, I've been here for two years. And we haven't made the tournament yet, and for an ACC school, that's kind of goal, the goal. So I think everyone that's 
you know, left that is still staying here and all that are kind of bought into that same thing that no matter who's the coaches here, no matter who we have here next year, like we want to make the NCAA tournament and we're going to do whatever we can as players uh, to build, you know, that together and make the tournament. I mean, so I don't think it makes anything awkward. I mean, there's definitely guys that, you know, come to a school for a coach and, uh, you know, that obviously made it, had a huge impact on why I ended up going to Wake is because I had built a good relationship with uh, one of the assistant coaches, Coach Woodbury, and then, you know, enjoyed Coach Manny when I got to uh, to visit. But at the same time, I mean, like we've been talking about, uh, this, this level of college athletics is a business. It's always going to be a business. And, um, I mean, the wins and losses is what a lot of times, you know, determines what's going to happen. And so as far as that goes, I mean, I think, you know, we're all, we all just want to, we all have the same goal of, you know, being able to make the NCAA tournament next year. And so no matter who's at the helm, like we just want to be able to bring it our all. And so I don't think it's made anything awkward. I mean, we all just kind of want to, you know, now just figure out who's going to be our coach next year and start uh, building a relationship with, with them and everything. And also, you know, still reaching out to the the old guys, the old coaches, because I think, I think one of the bigger things that's not talked about when that kind of stuff happens is what happens to the uh, the coaching staff and the support staff. I mean, the support staff, you, you spend a lot of time with them because the coaches have less time that the NCAA allows you to spend with them. So we probably spend more time, you know, with Coach Horner, strength coach, uh, Corey, who's our technology guy, Evan, who's Coach Manning's son, who is our director of player development, uh, Jason, who is our assistant strength coach. I mean, we spend our most time with those guys. And so, and they're, you know, they're, they're not getting paid as much as some of the other people that, you know, also were terminated yesterday. Um, so a lot of times people don't talk about the support staff, the director of ops, um, that kind of thing, the equipment, the equipment service people, and those people all have to now find a job in uh, the coronavirus situation. So, you know, I feel for them and I had really good relationships with all of them. So hopefully I, those, you got to, you know, stay in touch with them too and make sure they're all doing good. That, I think that's something that a lot of times gets ignored when a coach leaves because, or a coach gets fired or a coach retires is that you have a whole support staff that now has to look for something else to do. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate that comment. Well, Miles Lester, thank you so much for your time with us today. And I just want to wish you the very best of luck moving forward, whatever happens with the coronavirus, with this coming basketball season, and with your new coach. Uh, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.